1: Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
2: Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go.
3: Initialize sequence.
0: Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Bald Baldface Truth
2: probably written more words about Larry Scott, the Pac-12 Conference Commissioner, the former commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference, than, than any other villain in in the story, right? 30 years of doing this, there, there's no other villain that has quite had the stage that Larry Scott has enjoyed. Has he enjoyed it? Well, of course he has. He's made more than $50 million uh, by virtue of his uh, spot as the Pac-12 Conference Commissioner over the years. He's now out, probably on a beach somewhere, enjoying himself and laughing like all villains do at the end of uh, Act 1 of a play or a movie. Um, I couldn't help today but think about the building located at 360 3rd Street in downtown San Francisco. I've been there. I've toured what was the old Pac-12 conference headquarters uh, years ago. In fact, I spent a Saturday Inside the command center, the instant replay command center of the Pac-12 conference offices. And uh, I sat there, and Woody Dixon was uh, right over my shoulder, the former general counsel of the Pac-12 conference. Uh, Dave Hirsch, the former PR guy in the conference, was over the other shoulder. And I'm sure none too happy to be dragged into the command center on a Saturday, a college football Saturday, to babysit a media member that was invited to take a peek at the command center and the instant replay process and... I left there uh, a little bit less impressed than I arrived, to be honest with you. But the building was beautiful. Uh, We're talking etched glass. We're talking, uh, you know, Brazilian hardwood floors. We're talking about, uh, you know, the offices were, you know, really cool little spaces and beanbag pillows. And, you know, it looked like a tech company, the Pac-12 Conference, in those days. Uh, But I left there also with a column, a great column about, the replay command center and the problems that existed. You could see them up close. The problems that the the you know, the confusion, the communication, the, the fact that there were multiple games going on and crews were kind of watching the game they were supposed to be watching and then looking at a different game and, and by the way, why is Woody Dixon in the room, the general counsel of the Pac Twelve Conference? Well, all those years the book has been closed on those years of the Pac Twelve, but the hangover remains. And Larry Scott today, I wrote it at Johnconzano.com. Uh Larry, the Larry the Champagne Larry tax, so to speak, is uh is a five point seven million dollar uh hit that every Pac twelve conference member, including USC and UCLA, are going to have to endure here in the next twelve to twenty-four months. Uh the conference was overpaid by more than fifty million dollars over 10 years by Comcast under Scott's leadership. And and remember, the story of that accounting fiasco uh, resulted in two staff members of the Pac-12 losing their jobs. Uh, a lot of he said, he said going on as those two staff members, including Mark Shukin, the president of the Pac-12 Networks, and the conference's CFO, Brett Wilman, both pointing at Larry Scott saying, hey, we told him, we informed him. Uh, the uh, PAC-12 has interviewed Larry Scott. I don't think anything's in writing, but it's one of those things where you know two employees are saying, hey, we told the boss, and the boss is likely telling uh, the PAC-12, hey, you know they didn't tell me anything. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, th- nevertheless, nonetheless, uh, that accounting fiasco has caused a big headache, especially at Washington State today, where last night Washington State President Kurt Schultz issued a statement which he announced a temporary freeze on current and future positions in the athletic department. He has frozen non-essential travel. He has frozen the new professional development that goes on inside these athletic departments. And he's basically saying, hey, we're pumping the brakes here. There's something not right with the numbers, with our finances. And part of it is the fact that you know there's that $5.7 million hit that a place like Washington State is going to have to absorb. Um, it's uh, it's not like USC. It's not like Oregon or Washington. Washington State and Oregon State, probably Arizona, maybe some others, um, deal with a little bit different finances when it comes to uh, the Pac-12 conference and absorbing, you know, hey, there's a surprise, $5.7 million you need to come up with. Like at Washington State, that's a big number. That's a huge number. It's not like they can call Phil Knight and say, hey, you know what, we have a problem. We need you to help us out, and they can get a check. You know, they have to make 25, 30 calls. And in the meantime, state law in the state of Washington requires the universities, the public universities, to publish their budget. And so there's a problem at Washington State, and Kirk Schultz knows it. And he had to issue a statement in which he said there was inaccurate documentation of revenues and expenses. It exceeded the expenditures for the year. Uh, there's a champagne larry tax that is happening. And in addition to that, Washington State is also uh, accepted the resignation of their chief financial officer in the athletic department. And the prevailing thought is that as the athletic department started to drill down on the fact that they are going to have a deficit, they eventually ran into the idea that their numbers weren't all that good to begin with. Uh, And they're looking harder at what happened inside their athletic department. Now, the Cougar athletic department is not unlike a lot of other major college athletic departments. You know, they're paying their football coach more than any other employee. But they have to be a little sick today. Thinking about the, the era of Larry Scott, who flew in charter jets. Remember, he didn't like to even stay in Pullman he would go to the games in Pullman he'd stay till about the end of halftime and then he would jump a jet so he could be home by the end of the game he did not want to spend the night in pullman and it reminded me of a story that i heard about larry scott and i've never i don't think i've ever shared this before not on air for sure but larry scott's son played club basketball and as club basketball parents uh, find that you know over the years they end up traveling around with the travel teams, and it can get costly. I know. I had a 12-, 13-, 14-, 15-year-old playing club volleyball, and you can, if you're not careful, and if you're on a team that's really successful, you can end up playing games, you know, all over the place, in Phoenix, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Texas, in, you know, Minnesota, in, you know, all over the place. And sometimes the travel costs for the season – End up being several thousand dollars in addition to the, you know, two or three, four thousand that you're paying in addition to the private lessons and all that stuff. You, again, you, we can have a whole topic where we can talk about the rabbit hole that is the, you know, the cottage industry of youth sports and club sports. Uh, a lot of money at stake there. But Larry Scott's son was playing club basketball and they happened to have a tournament in the state of Oregon. It was at the Hoop in Salem. Raise your hand if you know the Hoop in Salem. Great little venue. Uh, I think they do a nice job running the place. I wish we all had, like, uh, several of those facilities all over the place. Um, You know, we wouldn't have to, you know, I I can remember getting called to club volleyball matches and saying, okay, you have to be at the Hoop in Salem at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. and going, oh, man, we might as well sleep in the parking lot. Well, Larry Scott's son was playing in a tournament at the Hoop, and uh, it turns out that, you know, the parents, as they sometimes do at the end of competition of a day, will say, hey, you know, let's go out to eat as a team. Well, Larry Scott apparently put his foot down with his team and said to the other parents, there are no good restaurants to eat at in Salem. He refused to dine in Salem. In fact, he refused with part of the team to stay in Salem. And it gives you kind of an idea of his mentality. Again, this is a guy that, you know, during one Pac-12 men's basketball tournament several years ago, I found out he was staying in this luxury suite at the Aria Hotel, $7,500 a night suite on a normal night. He got a big, big, big discount on it because the Pac-12 was holding the tournament, but the uh, there with uh, MGM Grand and MGM, uh, you know, facilities as part of the tournament. But the optics of that alone were so obnoxious, especially to athletic directors in the Pac-12 conference who were stuck with a bad TV deal that Larry Scott had negotiated that had long before become stale, watching him jet around the country, leave their games at halftime, watching him talk with athletic directors and others in a way that uh, wasn't professional, condescending, talked down to people, spoke to media members the same way. Uh, He was really uh, an example of an executive that managed up in the worst of ways. And, you know, all he cared about were the 12 university presidents and chancellors in the Pac-12, his bosses he didn't care about the ad's he didn't care to connect with the ad's he spoke to them like uh, you know they weren't uh, they weren't uh, deserving of knowledge he wouldn't share information with them that they were curious about when it came to media rights and the distributions they were getting cuz in the end the athletic directors are, are stuck having to make ends meet based upon the amount of money, the amount of revenue that the conference creates, it, you know, and we could talk all we want about the presidents and chancellors are in charge because they are the Pac-12 CEO group, and frankly, they're enablers in this whole Larry Scott conundrum. If you really want to point a finger, you know, you can look at Larry Scott because he is the animal that you know ended up being the byproduct of a system where what happened: presidents and chancellors were what focused very much so on their own campuses focused on the problems they were having on their own campuses with Title IX and holes in their budget and, uh, you know, eventually uh, lawsuits they were having on their campuses that had nothing to do with sports and, you know, uh, unions and, uh, you know, professors and tenure and just, you know, the billion-dollar industry of education, higher education. You know, these academics were focused very much on their own campuses. And so what happened was they – it, it, this also you know, coincided with a time when, uh, with which uh, athletic departments started to become self-sufficient. Right, TV money started to climb, and so you know I can remember at Oregon, uh, suddenly you know used to be critical of Oregon and say, okay, this is a public-funded university, you know, why are they using university funds for X, Y, Z, and all of a sudden realizing, hey, uh, Oregon's you know response to most of the criticism was, hey, we're self-sufficient, which is fine. You know, I think it's it's a good response. Like if you're Oregon and you are self-sufficient, you know, you you can, I think look people in the eye and say, "Hey, who cares if we pay our football coach 6 or 7 million dollars a year, 5 million dollars a year, or whatever it was at the time, you know, hey, that's our money. We're raising that money. We're self-sufficient." So that self-sufficiency argument became justification, right, for the athletic department spending. And it really did get the academics off the backs of the presidents and chancellors because remember, the biology department, the history department, the law school, the library, they were all previous to self-sufficiency looking over at the athletic department and going, hey, how come they're getting so much money? How come they're getting subsidized? Do they need a subsidy? And so what happened on most university campuses is student fees rose. The Universities were asking the students to help offset some of the expenses in athletics. They still are in a lot of places. And then simultaneously, television revenue rose. And so... The university presidents and chancellors were less tuned in to what was going on uh, with the sports arm because the sports arm wasn't costing them any money. And so I think Larry Scott benefited from that, the former Pac-12 commissioner, because that era of presidents and chancellors, and, you know, in the case of of Oregon, it was kind of a revolving door of presidents that were coming through there. And then you had, uh, at Oregon State, Ed Ray, who was there forever, And, you know, those presidents were just happy going, hey, we're not subsidizing athletics anymore. That conference is making us money. Let me focus my attention elsewhere. So they stopped thinking about, you know, is Larry Scott doing a good job? Is the conference maximizing revenue? What are the expenses? Uh, You know, why is that guy flying around on a chartered jet? And why why do we have a headquarters in downtown San Francisco costing us, brace for this, Six hundred and eighty six million or six hundred eighty six thousand dollars a month a month in rent six eighty six stephen six hundred eighty six thousand dollars a month in rent in downtown San Francisco what do you think you get with that
1: oh man Probably something nice, but it is down, nice. it is downtown San Francisco, so I don't know for sure. Like it's expensive there, but it seems a bit excessive. John, six hundred eighty-six thousand yeah. dollars a month, seems a little excessive. Six hundred eighty-six K. I've
2: yeah. been, you know, and here's the thing: it's right by the Moscone Center. That's where the headquarters were. They're no longer there. They've moved out. Everybody's working from home. But yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow. And so, you know, Larry was running off being Larry, and. He was rubbing shoulders with CEOs of all the tech companies in the Bay Area, and he was running the Pac-12 a lot like it was a tech company, and you know he was uh, just sort of uh, you know showering himself with all of the uh, all of the perks that CEOs get, and frankly he was running unchecked, and so I think it's why you have to put a lot of the blame for this on the entity and the a leadership that sort of enabled Larry Scott. Like, we can all be mad. Hell, I could write a book about Larry Scott and the things that went wrong. I think it would be a hell of a book. And there are so many stories that I haven't even got in there. But in the end, I do think you have to look at the 12 university presidents and chancellors who left him unchecked. And, frankly, let it go for too long. I can remember in 2011 when Larry Scott cut the first Pac-12 TV deal that was a pretty good deal. I came in, it was year one of his tenure, and I said, hey, he's doing a pretty good job. By about 18 months later, I was writing about the unrest with the athletic directors. I was writing about the ADs uh, and the coaches uh, complaining that he was out of touch, that nobody knew football, all of that stuff. Uh, By about 2015, 2016, I was calling for his job. Nobody listened. Nobody cared. Nobody seemed to uh, be tuned into it. Several of the ADs were complaining to me privately and openly about his leadership and saying this is going in a bad direction. The the people who were actually there getting ready to spend the revenue and invested in football and men's basketball mostly, were going hey there are problems here by 2017 it was hitting you over the head that there were problems i did a four part series on larry scott pac12 was falling behind it looked dire in 2017 it was almost like watching a you know a company on wall street sort of take a negative turn and continue to uh, you know drive downward in in a way that uh, really was alarming but nobody seemed to care about it So I do put it on the presidents and chancellors. But the end result is this, guys. Like when you look at what is happening right now across college athletics, you've got, you know, the Larry Scott hangover in the Pac-12. You've got the Big Ten Conference and Kevin Warren, uh, the uh, commissioner there that, uh, you know, left for the Chicago Bears after negotiating what everybody thought was a billion-dollar TV deal. Turns out he was about $70 short of that made some promises that uh, the conference does not want to keep, and it looks like he was just kind of uh, being a self-serving executive in the end. but I, I'm left kind of thinking about the you know the whole ecosystem and where it went wrong. And I think I, I really can drill down on this idea that you've got this new era of conference commissioners. They're fancy schmancy. they've got experience in the uh, in the uh, media world. George Kleofkoff included. Brett Yormark coming from the NBA. He's a marketing guy. You've got Kevin Warren coming from the NFL. He's you know all about bells and whistles and marketing and got, nobody, nobody, including Larry Scott, has any experience with actual colleges. With nobody's got experience with higher education, except the ACC's Jim Phillips and the SEC's Greg Sankey. And those two conferences, I think, are a little more grounded in their ways. like they, You can argue the ACC is way behind on revenue, but I think they get it, and they're not willing, like Phillips and Sankey are not willing to sell out their universities and their athletic departments in the way that the others are, probably are. And I'm worried about it. I'm worried about college athletics. I'm worried about the Pac-12 schools. I don't think anything's going to happen in this cycle, but it just feels like it was a tremendous misfire and i'm worried about university presidents and chancellors running businesses you know it you know i i know nothing about like the automotive industry you put me in charge of like you know gresham ford or car dealership or a jiffy lube or whatever it is i'm going to mismanage that thing i don't know what i'm doing with that like i know my area of expertise i know what i'm good at you know what you're good at the presidents and chancellors at most of the universities, the major universities in our country, are educators. They're academics. They're not business people. The fact that they are in charge of hiring for these positions that are huge positions of leadership and business is wonky to me. It's, it's, uh, it's really a misfire when you, uh, when you look at that. Uh, we got a great show for you today. Chris Hill is going to be joining us. I am geeked out about this guest. He is the former Utah Athletic Director. He was at Utah when Utah made the transition to the Pac-12. He has worked shoulder-to-shoulder with Larry Scott, and in fact, Chris Hill was the athletic director that was in on that meeting once upon a time in Las Vegas, in which he raised his hand and he started questioning Larry Scott, saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't understand the revenue figures. Uh, It feels like there should be more money here. Uh, And Larry Scott told him to sit down and be happy with what he got. Chris Hill is going to join us to talk about what it was like to work at that time in the Pac-12. But first, in the next segment, we're going to talk about the Denver Nuggets. Do they give hope to Portland and the Trailblazers? A small market team pushing towards the NBA championship. And on the other side of the bracket, a surprise, not a one seed, not a two seed, not a three seed, a surprise entry looking like it will be the opponent. And the one thing standing in the Denver Nuggets' way, we'll talk about all of that coming up as the uh, NBA Finals, the stage is uh, set and ready for Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets to seize it. But what does it say to Portland? All that and more on today's show. I appreciate that you're here for it. I'm not a small talk guy, and I know that might sound weird for somebody who talks for a living. I don't necessarily, you know... Like, I saw something on Facebook one time, and it said, like, describe what you do for a living in simple terms. Like, Stephen, you know, you push buttons, and sometimes you talk when when I'm not talking for a living. Get what I'm saying there? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. That's how I would describe it. And I would say, I watch people run around and sweat, and I write about it. That's what I would do. But I'm not a small talk person. I small I find small talk exhausting. And yet today I found myself in a small talk situation with the mailman. You know, I don't know if you're a your mail person. Do you call a mail person or mailman? But if it's a man, can I call it? A, can I say mailman?
1: I think so. It, I think if it's a man, yeah. Why not?
2: It, is that sexist? If I say mailman, people go, well, what if it's a woman? I go, well, if it was a woman, I would say mail lady. The yeah. male lady You wouldn't you call know.
1: you wouldn't call the woman a mailman. Like you would call her the no. woman, yeah.
2: Yeah. So my mail person uh is uh is happened to be driving down the street and I happened to be walking out to drop uh I had a letter, needed to get in the mail before the show, and I was like, you know what, if the mailman's already been here I'll just later after the show drive to the mail post office and stick it in the box. But I happened to see him driving. He was going, you know, across the street in front of my house. He was driving. And so, and I know the guy. And so I waved at him, and he slowed down. And I ran over to him, and I handed him the letter. And I said, hey, uh, how you doing? And then he kind of gave me that look. And I know that look because I sometimes give people that look. Like if I'm in the gym, and I'm in the hurry and people want to talk about the Blazers or the Ducks or the Beavers, and I know down deep I'm going, hey, I got like 38 minutes here. I got to get out of here. And he gave me that look, and then uh, he said, how's it going? But he said, how's it going in a way that's like he doesn't really want to know how it's going. You know, he's just kind of making talk. And then I proceeded to tell him how it was going. And I realized as I started to talk, I was like, well, Anna's in Taiwan with her dad, you know, and she's bringing, bringing her dad to back to the United States, and – we're really worried about him, and then I suddenly realized, like, he really didn't want to know how it was going. And I was like, he must get this all day. Can you think of a job like that? Bartender, maybe? Like, give me an idea of a job where people all day long are just giving you their small talk.
1: Yeah, I think bartender's a good one. Uh, customer service, you know, grocery uh, grocery store. Like, I know that from Costco. People love to tell you their stories, what's going on. So, like, you know, a, a cashier, something like that. Like you are always like, hey, how's it going? And then people will go on about their day. A lot of them, a lot of people, you know, won't say yeah. anything. But um, yeah, I think those are probably the two jobs right off the bat. Like I can think like, yeah, people will tell you how they feel. You know, taxi driver, same type of thing.
2: Yeah. How about a barista? Yeah, how about like you know Dutch Bros? You know, they lean out. Like nobody's having more fun than Dutch Bros. By the way, the kids at Dutch Bros are like in there. It's like a rave going on where you're trying to get your coffee, and they'll say, "What are you doing today?" and I will often just say like this this is what I'm doing like cuz I know they really don't want me to go into a long thing about well I recorded a podcast earlier today I wrote a column later I'll be, I'll be you know doing a radio show like they, nobody cares about that so I think um I think that the barista would get it that way how about a barbershop I I don't spend a lot of time in barbershops but I would have to think that the barber gets tired of having the same conversation over and over again
1: I agree with you um, as a fellow non hair guy. Yeah. Hey, uh, what
2: am I talking to you for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't spend time in the barbershop either. So, uh, Somebody,
2: yeah, you save money? Like, how much money do you think you save in a year on uh, between shampoo and not having to cut your hair?
1: Well, probably a lot. I mean, you know, because I just have to shave my head, you know, so it's like you just buy the one razor or the one shaver and uh, you're good for a while until it busts down. So, I think we probably, I mean, I don't even know how much haircuts are, to be honest. Like, I I, I don't remember.
2: Somebody asked me on my weekly mailbag, how much money do I save on shampoo? And I'm like, I still wash my hair." Yeah,
1: you still got to wash it.
2: It's not like I just go, oh, there's nothing there. Like if, if I was decapitated, I wouldn't wash it, but I have no hair. But I also thought, you know, is a haircut still $6? And, uh, and then <laughs> I, I thought, I, I, don't to think my- so. I thought to myself, you know what I'm really missing out on is I'm missing out on the gossip that goes on. And uh, let's go to the phone lines. Bob is called in. Bob, what's on your mind? What's going on?
4: Okay. You've hit two uh, different subjects that I've been on. Um, one of them, I was a UPS driver, so people ask me all the time. However, um, or I would ask them, but my wife had cancer. Uh, she passed away uh, 12 years ago, and uh, people would ask me, every day all day how she was doing one day i'm way behind and somebody said how is she doing i go i don't have time they go i just want to know how she's doing 30 minutes later i'm going i don't know how i'm going to get my route done so i started praying and i got in at the same time um but I normally do have no idea how it happened. Um,
0: you pulled it off. The was, other
4: was what you were just talking about, and I forget what it was um, right before I called.
2: Okay. Uh, Probably the barber shop in the haircut. Oh, the barber
4: okay. shop. Yeah, yeah that was really great. I'm in the Army in the 60s, and um, I go sit down to get all my hair cut off, and the barber says, Hey, do you know Bobby Moore? I go, yeah. He goes, he's my son.
2: <laughs> oh, wow.
4: And I, I just go, well, then don't cut off my hair. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like that, Bob. I appreciate that. I, I've often wondered. Like, I, this happened to me yesterday. Okay, so I'm, I'm home alone with the, uh, with the daughters and running an errand with them after the show. And we happen to be going into a Target. And there was a guy outside the Target who was collecting signatures for a petition. And as I walked past, he said, sir, can I just get a minute? And Stephen, I turned to him. I said, I don't have a minute. Like I I had these two kids. I got to get them in to Target, get what we needed to get, get back home, get, you know, all the, you know, everything done. Get them in bed in time. It was already like seven o'clock. And so I was like, I don't have a minute. And he just kind of looked at me like I was rude. But I literally don't have a minute in that setting, like
1: well, you know. What's the proper way to go about that? Because you know, sometimes you just don't make eye contact and then you straight up ignore them. Like I feel that yeah. I feel like that's rude. But if you say, "Yeah, I don't really have time" or "I don't care," that's rude too. Like there's I no, just, there's no yeah. good answer.
2: I looked him square in the eye because we were in, we were hustling. I mean, you could probably tell. I, you could tell we were hustling. I saw him. He had the clipboard, so I knew. I was like, okay, this is you know, he's trying to he's gonna try to tackle me here in the open field. And as I got to him, he said, "Sir," and I said, "I don't have I don't have time." I just don't have it. I don't have it. Like, I, you know, I, do, I sorry, you know. Why, does, why should I say sorry, though? Like, that bothers me, too. It bothers me that I, that, like, there's part of me that's like, hey, I'm sorry that I don't have the time for you and that you were hanging out in front of the store that I happen to need to go into. So I just, you know, to me, in the end, I, I felt like I was doing it to the mailman today. And I felt like, I was like, wait a minute, I've just derailed this guy's entire day by telling him, you know, and he kind of looked at me like, like I, got the feeling that if, if everybody on his route just took a minute of his time, he'd never get anywhere. Like you think about that. You think about the, you know, it's like death by paper cut. Like ultimately, you'd never get anywhere. So I try to stay out of people's way. Is what I'm saying. Well, especially and so, you
1: know, especially if they're making a living. I think that's the, I think that's the, the line there. If they're trying to make a living, they're making some money. Like let them do their thing. Let them finish their job. But, I mean, if you're just out and about, I think it's okay to have a little small talk.
2: There is to an extent. And I, I always feel, like, for me, because so much of my job is, like, there's an engagement on this radio show with the listener. Like, I care about the listeners. I do. I'm glad they're here. Like, I'm grateful that they're here. It, and I care about the readers, and I'm grateful that they read me. And so often when I meet one, I want to give them 20 minutes of my time and answer their questions about sports and talk with them and engage with them. And frankly, I want to find out something about them so that like when I go to sit down to write my column in the morning, or when I'm doing this radio show and I'm sitting in a studio with four walls and myself and you know, talking and interviewing people via phone or whatnot, I actually can put a face on the listener who's out there. Like it's I think it's deeply connective in that way. Uh, And I love the format of it because of that, so uh, it's good for me to meet people, but there are times when uh, it'll be like I write my column in the morning, and then I got a chance to get into the gym, and literally I arrive at the gym, and I look at the clock, and I go, okay, I got like 48 minutes, and I got to do this and get out of here, and there's like four people that want to talk to you. and. And I will go, hey, I'll talk for a minute, but I, well, then i got to get back to working out because I don't – like I do – and I, I tend to find that it's – uh and no offense, this is not ageism. It's the retirees. My dad does this. My dad is guilty of this. Like when I talk to my dad sometimes, I get the impression he's not in that much of a hurry. He's got a little more time on his hands. And yet when I talk to retirees, they all tell me how busy they are. They're busier than ever. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Maybe – you know, we can have a two-minute conversation instead of twenty but between that next set in the gym. Like, I'm happy to talk to people. I get great ideas too. I had a guy come up to me the other day and said, "Hey, you need to write about this kid, this uh, sprinter at Lake Oswego High School, who's just lights out. You know, breaking the national record in the in the girls' 100 meters." And need to write about her. I'm like, "Yeah, you know what? If this guy in the gym knows about her, then I probably do need to write about her, or I need to interview her on the show." So. I do get ideas from that. It's not like it's a one-sided conversation, but I do feel obligated and and uh, you know interested in meeting and engaging with the people who are listening to the show.
1: Yeah, as a uh, husband of a track coach, I know about the Las like, we go girl as well. She is awesome. But I have a theory about um, like the retirees, John. Yeah, and the why they're so busy and they'll say they're busy is because they have like one or two things they need to accomplish every single day and once they do it then they're done but they're so busy like it's it's not like a big accomplishment like it's going to the gym i need to work out like that's that's one checklist thing you need to mark off your list but you have no time limit so you just feel like you're busy and you can do, go throughout the day so that person can talk to you for an hour and then they're like oh i still have to do this and i did it so i've i've been busy all day i've been doing stuff and going around so it, it's just the fact that they have so much time to put out a list that they have to do and then they do it
2: yeah, okay. I like to have a list. Uh, you know, That's the thing. I, I don't have a list. I just, I just need, have to do it. We need, we need to make start making lists is what I think we need to do. All right, we got our big splash that is coming up, plus top of the hour, Chris Hill, the former athletic director at Utah. I'm going to ask him a couple things. One, he was there when Utah made the transition to the Pac-12 conference. It's possible that San Diego State and SMU it could learn from the blueprint of Utah. What did he see? In the Pac-12, did he expect that Utah would come into the Pac-12 and have so much success? Plus, he was working alongside other athletic directors and trying to work with leadership in the Pac-12 conference, Larry Scott being uh, the commissioner. What was it like to work with Champagne Larry on important topics? Chris Hill will be joining us at 4 o'clock. Up next, though, we're going to talk about the Denver Nuggets. I promised you that uh, we could learn something from the Nuggets story. What did we learn? What has Portland learned from watching Denver? Remember, it wasn't that long ago. Portland and Denver were fighting to get into the Western Conference Finals. Blazers won the series. But it looks like Denver won the war. We'll talk about it coming up. So I just got a uh, – we just had a delivery uh, earlier today for of uh, a package. Remember, uh, we had ordered Anna a Mother's Day present. It just came today. I ordered it off Instagram. I have a track record, a bad track record on Instagram. I think I'm 0-4 in my potential purchases, Uh, ordered it in March, came after Mother's Day. Beware of Instagram is what I'm saying. Uh, This brings us to our big splash. It is the one thing that you need to know today. This is
0: the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. It Where? Down there. The Big Splash.
2: Well, the Lakers uh, rolled over, got knocked out of the playoffs. Uh, LeBron James afterwards, 38-year-old LeBron, uh, skipped his team's postseason media exit interviews after getting knocked out of the playoffs by the Denver Nuggets. Uh, Despite LeBron scoring 40, including 31 in the first half, the seven-seed Lakers were swept by the Nuggets in game four on Monday night, 113, 111. Uh, the Lakers are out very quickly. LeBron, speculation about LeBron, he, uh, he said afterwards, uh, you know, he wasn't sure he's going to be back. He's, you know, all the, oh, is LeBron retiring? All of that uh, speculation immediately ramped up after the game. I've got a theory on that. But I also think, like, it's in, worth pointing out. Remember, there was a documentary film crew. That wanted to uh, film a last dance type documentary. Remember Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. Uh, well, there was a documentary film crew capturing everything LeBron did during the playoffs. Uh, I couldn't help but think, Stephen, last night as uh, the Denver Nuggets walked off winners, that that's going to spoil the uh, that's going to spoil the documentary. Like that, it's not you know it doesn't have the same kind of appeal, does it? If Le- LeBron's out. Hey, this is how it ended for LeBron, and he was out.
1: Yeah, and just knowing what LeBron has said and the things he does, I can't imagine that's going to be his you know quote unquote last dance, right? Like that's not how it's going to finish, especially the way MJ finished his uh, time in Chicago with the championship, and now Bronny going to USC. I mean, I just the loss. You know, LeBron says things, and I feel like he's just saying it to be uh, in the news, right? I guess I don't. There's no chance that he's going to come back or not come back next season. Uh, and play basketball it just seems you know it's one of those things where you just got over an emotional loss and they're asking him these questions so i kind of get it but at the same time as lebron so i don't know i just i don't like do you,
2: it here's the theory i had do you think that some of this is about uh lebron wanting to change the conversation because the conversation after that loss is he got swept this is not you know my, this didn't happen to michael jordan He got swept out of the playoffs, and I think there would be a lot—a very different conversation if you know now the is LeBron retiring conversation starts up. But it frames everything; it it gives us the impression that you know he's near the end, he is uh, almost—he is almost done. And uh, look out, like you know here, you know LeBron is—is he going to come back? It's just, just a lot of fear. And it's a lot of uh, speculation, and it changes the whole conversation. It's this is exactly what you were do, would do if you were a PR person who didn't want your client to speak about the fact that they got boat raced by the Denver Nuggets. You'd be like, okay, let's change the conversation, because LeBron gets into the uh, gets into the postseason, gets out, and you know afterwards he had this to say.
3: Uh, it was a it was pretty cool, pretty cool ride. Um... But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know I think it was okay. I don't. I don't like to say it's a successful year because I don't play for anything besides winning championships at this point in my career. And you um, know, I don't. I don't get a kick out of making a conference appearance. I've done it a lot, and <laughs> and it's not fun to me to not be able to be able to be a part of uh, you know, get to the finals. But um but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens going forward. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I got a lot to think about to be honest. I got a lot to think about to be honest. And um just for me personally going going forward with the game of basketball, I got a lot to think about.
2: Lot to think about. Is he changing the conversation there, Stephen, or am I looking too hard into it?
1: I think I think you could be right on this. Um, you know, LeBron's made these kind of comments before after they lose series. Um, you remember, I believe it was after they lost to the Mavericks with the Heat. He basically said, "You know, what you're going to go back and live your life, uh, you know, doing whatever you do, and I'm going to play basketball and be rich." So he he's kind of done this before, where he takes the the focus off the court, and you can say in that final game last night in Game Four. LeBron took the last two shots right the last two drives one hit the side of the backboard the other one he got blocked by Aaron Gordon Jamal Murray Um, you know I, the first they were both kind of you know the first one was a heave kind of he kind of got stuck but didn't make a good move and the second one he just drove right into the defense so I don't know I, I think he is maybe deflecting a little bit of what happened on the court because he had a great game he had a good series he had a great showing great season for his age but it just didn't turn out like he wanted it to, and you know, like I you know, going in the series, John, I was convinced. I, I thought the yeah. I thought the Lakers were better, and I did, th- yeah, I did too. And I think they got they got embarrassed a little bit in this series that they weren't as close as they thought they were. And I think LeBron is deflecting probably a little bit and saying, you know what, maybe I'm not at that level anymore. And now he's saying, you know, I've got to question uh, question everything I'm doing.
2: In the East, it's fascinating to me because Boston's talent should have them in control of this series and yet tonight they face elimination down three zip just like the lakers were games at 530 on tnt and you have like you know eric spolstra talking like he's red arbok and you have joe mazula over with the celtics you know admitting that he didn't have his team ready to play
3: biggest game of the season a game you had to have and you guys just look completely lost after the first six minutes what exactly happened
0: out there? Uh, I just didn't have him ready to play. Over the last 48 hours? Um, yeah, just, I just didn't have him ready to play. I should have, uh, whatever it was, whether it was a starting lineup, or it was an adjustment, just, I have to get them in a better place ready to play. And that's on me.
2: That was uh, disastrous on Sunday evening in Miami. They got thoroughly embarrassed, 128-102. And to me, like, you look at a team that's down 2-zip and you go, okay, game three, you have to win that game. You don't want to have to win four in a row. Now, the Blazers in 2003 in the playoffs were down 3-zip to the Mavericks, came back and forced a game seven. But those those are few and far between. Is Missoula the problem? Have they quit on their coach? Is it possible that a team that's playing in the conference finals could be quitting on a coach?
1: It is. It is definitely possible. I find it a little hard to believe that they've already quit on him since this is his first season. I, I just don't know what to make of Boston. Like I think they're so talented, and you just said that. There's been no teams that have won after getting down three zero. Boston has as good a chance as anybody. If they can win tonight, like you know, even tonight they're down three zero in the series. They're barely an underdog to the Heat. Like that's how much better they really are than the Heat all season long. I don't know if it's just a fit of the pieces, if it's the coaching, if it's a little bit of everything, if it's just Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown aren't the dudes to lead a team to a championship. I think there's a lot of things you can question about Boston, but overall, like that talent is so good. I think you got to blame a little bit of everything. Like I have a hard time putting all the blame on a coach. I think if the coach, yes, can make an impact, and you see that with Eric Spoelstra, and I think he's one of a kind because. In the NBA, it's all about the talent. We, we saw it. Chauncey Billis may not be able to coach, but we don't know because his talent has never been there in Portland. Like You just don't know. I think coaching gets put on too much pressure in the NBA. It's a lot of just going out there and playing and being motivated yourself. If you can't motivate yourself to play in the NBA playoffs in a game three when you're down 2-0, I question some of the players in that. I question your, the players' motivation as much as I would question the coach's ability to coach.
2: I keep looking at the fact that Missoula was kind of thrust into the head coaching job when Ime Odoka went sideways, uh, had an improper relationship, whatever you want to call it, and he gets fired and all of a sudden Missoula's the guy. You have Damon Stoudemire, one of his key assistants, who leaves to go to Georgia Tech. Um, there's problems. There's problems in the front office. There's problems on the coaching staff. And that roster though is good enough. It's good enough to win this series. And it's you know, they were ten point favorite in game one. They were ten point favorite in game two you know, they're they're down 3-zip to Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat. And, by the way, Jimmy Butler gets fined for not talking to the media after Game 3. Jimmy, my stance on this, by the way, has changed over the years because I remember being on the other side of that when Rasheed Wallace was, like, not speaking and Marshawn Lynch kind of made it fashionable to not talk to the media, whatever. That's part of your player contract. But I actually think it's on brand for Jimmy Butler to be like, you know what? I'm not. I'm up three zip, and I'm not talking. If it's the I, if it's yeah. the
1: Heat versus the Nuggets in the finals, are there any two are there any cooler players in the NBA besides Nikola Jokic and Jimmy Butler? Like they are, I, I like cool wise. I think they are awesome. Yeah. Like Jokic is so humble, and Jimmy Butler just has that attitude of you know I'm a baller and I'm better than you, and I'm gonna prove it on the court every single night. Like I find those guys very likable. So it'll be it'll be a change of pace uh, to
2: have like two likable
1: players. I don't like the Nuggets in general, but the top two players in the series, I do like them both.
2: By the way, on our United States Postal Service uh, question earlier in the show, uh, a letter carrier has reached out to me on Twitter, Chris in the Gorge, who says the official title is letter carrier. Uh, He said most of us enjoy chatting with customers, but in the last few years they have begun to monitor the letter carriers with GPS. So they get scrutinized for time-wasting practices if the chats exceed a few minutes. That seems a little excessive. It I... does seem a little excessive. You know? I, the other day, I was taking the kids to school. Anna's in Taiwan. And she's like, you know what? Uh, I was monitoring your activities from 6,800 miles away. <laughs> and I was like, I need to get a restraining order right now. This feels a little invasive. You know, that she's she's looking on Find My Friends and and tracking me over to the school. Those John, letter- it
1: looks like you took too long making the kids lunch today. <laughs> what is there? Is
2: everything okay? I was lingering in the bus turnaround, and I got, got busted. Uh, I feel bad for the letter carriers. Let them free. They must go free. All right, Chris Hill is coming up top of the hour. The Utah, former Utah AD, stay here for it. It'll be fantastic. It's on transition. You know, you're welcoming new teams in the Pac-12 maybe and more. I think if you are studying expansion in college athletics. You would include the University of Utah's move to the Pac-12 conference as exhibit A on how you join a conference with both feet on the ground running and, you know, back-to-back Pac-12 championships. A lot of continuity. Chris Hill 31 years in leadership helped bridge that addition to the Pac-12 as Utah moved in, became a Power Five member in 2011. He's a New Jersey native, played basketball at Rutgers, and came to Salt Lake City as a graduate assistant, as a coach. It's a guy who's got rich background, boots-on-the-ground experience. In athletic departments. I think there's a shortage of that when you look around the country and you talk about the conference commissioners, certainly Larry Scott. Certainly, I think you look at, uh, you know, like Kevin Warren, Big Ten Conference, former commissioner of the Big Ten, Brett Yormark, even George Kleofka. These are not former ADs. These are not former coaches. Chris Hill is joining us uh, for a conversation about all such things. How you doing?
5: I'm doing well, John. Good to get together with you again.
2: Well, I appreciate you making time. I thought of you today, because I wrote about Larry Scott, and I thought, you know what? Those ADs back in the day, they were uh, charged with working alongside him, and it probably didn't feel like you were working alongside him very often. But, uh, you know, let's – let's before we get into all of that, let's just talk about the transition of Utah to the Pac-12 back in the day because San Diego State SMU might be making that kind of transition. What were you guys thinking because you did it right? Well,
5: we wanted to – we wanted to make sure we just didn't waltz in. You know, we've been running our program pretty hard and putting together facilities. And, you know, with the eye, uh, I think I told before – if. If somebody's interested in expansion, we want to be ready to move quick. And we just made a commitment. In fact, uh, we paid it back, but I told the president, we have got to invest right away in football and men's and women's basketball and our key other sport, gymnastics, and we might go in the hole a little bit, but we'll pay it back, and and that's what happened. We, we didn't want to start. We knew if we started competitive, and now it's gotten really competitive, that uh, we'd be in good shape. We wanted to – not just being a Pac-12, but we wanted to be somebody and 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 make it happen, and not go hat in hand.
2: The things that you did to lay the groundwork for that was it investment in facilities, or did you feel like you were already there? Was it, you know, coaching salaries? Uh, were there things we're not thinking about? Because I know, as media members and fans, we often don't think about the language inside an athletic department.
5: Well, I, I think the the facilities we had you know, we were developing and, and in a way they expanded, you know, we, we never had any debt, but then we got into PAC 12, our $16 million football facility became a 30 million and we borrowed some money, which we were allowed, which we were able to do. So that, and we had to make sure we paid our top level uh, sports I mentioned, and then the other ones would catch up, but immediately we had to make sure our guys were in the ball game. So we would have continuity in, in the success we had and, you know, so, and we had to have some patience too. You know, it wouldn't be easy, but now you, it's been just
0: great.
2: You guys uh, have uh, you know done well with Kyle Whittingham. He, you know, you oversaw a, a long tenure, multiple coaches. But what what did you see in Kyle Whittingham? And 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 I know we've talked about this before, but there were a couple of years that were, you know, mediocre by his standards. That and you stuck with him. What what did you see that made you stick with him?
5: Well, I, you know, I saw somebody that would give us continuity. Also, he evaluated talent really well. Uh, he's smart. He's tough. Organized. So all those things kind of lead up to. And he had a, a you know, a couple of years with Urban, and that I think helped him a lot. And then when we got him through rough, sled, rough sledding, we kind of knew that we were still trying to recruit into the Pac-12, and and we felt that you know. Let's give this a shot and let, let's not react too quickly let's keep our head down and just go forward and that's what Kyle's done
2: is that hard to do when you, you know when you're in that seat and you know you're hearing the fans and you're looking at you know revenue and it, or maybe it's different at Utah because you know you draw there and you've got fan support
5: yeah you look at all those things and I want to be really simple about this if if you have if you're in charge of somebody and the, that employee comes into your office. And they say, I want to resign. Are you thrilled and jumping on the table and you're so happy? Or are you going, oh, my God, I don't think this is the right thing. So in the very simplest thing, if that would have happened, I would have not been happy that Kyle was moving on, you know. So uh, I just you, – you can't ignore all the other things, but you do have to ask yourself a question about that. And I think sometimes people react to uh, – You know, you need to pay attention to money. You need to pay attention to all those things. But is this guy going to help bring us along, develop the players, and get there and fight the good fight to get there?
2: Chris Hill with us, former University of Utah athletic director. Uh, I mentioned Larry Scott. Um, uh, I think, you know, there's a tax, there's a hangover, whatever you want to call it. What was it like to work alongside Larry? Because I think he could have brought the ADs, into the fold, put his arms around you, worked in conjunction with you, but I get the impression that was not the feeling.
5: No, I think that, you know, and he got hired because they wanted to get the opposite of what Tom Hansen, I think, was. They wanted to get somebody with some flash and innovation and, and all that stuff, which is fine. And, you know, at first everybody was kind of enamored because we had a nice TV contract, and but, you know, that was the market. It wasn't really... Um, like some special deal we did. And then as we got into two or three years, it was like, wait a minute, there's no communication. This PAC-12 network's kind of not working the way we thought. You know, we're in this expensive building. You know, and people started to, after two or three years under his leadership, were just saying, hmm. And trying to communicate your presidents that uh, there was some, some concern. You know, not, not like ADs are going to hire and fire somebody, but I think... With your boss, your president, you got to tell them some things you're feeling and seeing, or else they're in the dark. But I I just think, you know, Lowry did a good job of what they call today, I guess, called managing up. and He kind of dealt with the presidents. and God bless them. They're busy enough that, you know, they're not going to be able to get into the weeds like the ADs did.
2: Yeah, and I think that I talked about it off the top of the show because, you know, I keep getting asked from people, like, how did that happen? How did – you know, and I said the presidents and chancellors had holes in their own budgets. They were they were focused on faculty and tenure and Title IX and whatever else uh, popped up. It's whack-a-mole for the presidents and chancellors, and I think they needed a commissioner who would h- kinda handle the business of sports, especially as the athletic departments became self sustaining. Um, you know, the, the the famous, you know, interaction i e I've never asked you, but I've heard it from other ADs. That, you know, Larry Scott's in the room, you guys are in Vegas, um, and there's questions about revenue, budget, TV deal, and you start to push back a little bit in that meeting. Is it true that he told you, like, you know, be happy with what you have, or, you, you know, you're lucky for what you get, or how did that go down?
5: It was, yeah, it kind of went down like that, and <laughs> that kind of it did,
2: you know, and I don't know
5: if he was directing just at me personally, but, you know, I, I'm i kind of a devil's advocate guy, and then if we... Be closed doors, we can hash it out, then we open a door and we're supportive. But when you don't feel like you're heard or dismissed, it's just hard. You know, and I don't have any axe to grind with that. That was just a moment of just like saying, whoa, this is how it's going to be. And it's hard to, as you mentioned, the presidents are so busy. And it's just hard to take a, you know, a hard look at, you know, there's a wall between the ADs and us. And people like Bob Bolsby who knows athletics at the big 12 and Jim Delaney they understood the value of getting input from the ADs but knowing the president sort of boss it's a fine line but they valued the AD position right i think some some people come in and they really just want to do the marketing and sales and not really understand all the nuances of of being in college athletics it's not you know it's you don't have to be a genius but you have to understand there are unique things about what ADs do, just like any other job, you know, because I, I listened to the radio, I couldn't do your job. And because you have played sports or been around sports, you really couldn't do my job. It's just different, you know, and I think ADs needed to be more, not have that wall between us and the presidents.
2: Where is all this headed, Chris, as you look at the landscape and TV driving a lot or wagging the dog, so yeah. to speak? You know, I, I'm worried about the ecosystem I'm worried we're going to lose what college athletics used to be. What are your thoughts on that?
5: Yeah, I just I, I just think you sometimes have to attack the reality of it and have in your mind, you know, we're not going to be like we used to be. But I was at our women's softball game last week, and I know people may roll their eyes. And that, and that win to move on, and the kids are there, and it's a pretty cool deal. And I, I'd hate to give that up. And there's also so many football players that – by their second year, no, they're not going to play in the pros and enjoy traveling with team and members. So I don't want to give that up, but I don't want to be not naive enough that there's tons of money and players, you know, need to get paid either I, NLI or whatever. I'm just afraid, or my thoughts are, and I, I think you've mentioned before, that it's going to get smaller and smaller until there's like 40 big-time football schools and everybody else is something else, you know. But at the end of the day, you'd hate to break it all apart you know with all the other 90% of the students enjoy it
2: the expansion of the college football playoff i thought was a move from the presidents and chancellors nationally to to pump the brakes on that consolidation you're talking about best case scenario well, I- yeah how do you, how do you see that and what's the best case scenario when the playoff expands
5: well i tell you what now now the the pac 12 has a much, much easier entree in, which has always been the rub. You know, you're not in, you're not in, you're not in. Well, if it's at 10 schools, man, the youths have a really great chance of being in the national playoff. And that that makes your fans, your conference feel better. So in a way, I think expansion kind of pointed his finger at the Pac-12 and said, this is a good idea for you guys. You know, so back then, we we're never going to be called. So I like what they did, I really do.
2: The you know I keep... help
5: slow down some things. I mean, why would you leave our conference now if you have, you know, enough money? But we're never uh, we're never going to have the same money as the SEC or the Big Ten. We never have. We never will. Okay, but we can be respectful. We can get enough. There are enough good players, and we can compete. And now, if you can play in a national championship, that kind of mitigates it a little bit. So why take a breath? Let's. This is not a bad deal.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned that, and that that was going to be my next question is. You know, I keep thinking what the Pac-12 and maybe the Big 12 and even the ACC need to do is they just need to keep the Big Ten and the SEC in view of the front windshield, right? You know, and right. But you've worked it. You've managed the budget when you are at a deficit of, you know, let's say the Big Ten schools end up like at 65 million in their distribution, and the Pac-12 ends up at 35 million. That's thirty million dollars a year. Can you compete in football and men's basketball, or how do you how do you manage that kind of deficit?
5: Well, you can compete. You got to get good people. You got to not waste money. You got to uh, you know be careful, and you can get support with the university and other things. But you know, it just as a funny point, I was at the softball game this weekend, and I ran into our women's volleyball coach, who's been there for. Ton of years we hired her when she was just a kid when I was a kid, and I reminisced about we played Texas A and M in a volleyball match and we lost in the fifth set uh, with extra points by two, and I said, you know Beth, if we just had a one hundred million dollars more in our budget, I think we could have (laughs) beat them. I said, there they are. I mean, so how do? you play these teams, you got to be smart. You got to not waste your money. You got to schedule carefully. You got to have support from your community, all those things add up. And and then there's enough good players that if you have coaches that can identify them, you know, I, I do worry about the portal now because, you know, if you're really good, I mean, Utah's going to keep their players in football because they've done so well, but there could be others that are just going to be hurting. But you know, I'm, and I think in your question to the budget, the budget is very, very important. At the same time, you you got to win, you got to have good coaches, and you can get it done. I think we felt good about it. We weren't cheap about things. We paid our coaches well. We we did some things, and and we watched just to make sure that we didn't go in debt too much. You know, our facilities are really good, but they're not gold plated doors. They're really good, but you I, know, yeah, so. Yeah,
2: I asked, yeah. the same, I asked the same question of, you know, a sitting AD in the Big Ten. I said, how do the Pac-12 schools compete? And, and his thought was, well, they're, not, they're still going to spend in football and in men's basketball. That's, right. not, that's not where they will cut corners or maybe go on, you know, a little bit more frugal. But how do you do that with Title IX in the background? And, and who ends up where, – where are the casualties in that model?
5: There may be some casualties in some of the men's sports. You know, everybody says that, but I don't want to mention that too much because I love the women's sports. Title IX is real. It's supposed to be there, and it's happening, and it's paying off so well for the young women. And so I I think what you have to do is make sure you fund those women's sports really well, and there may be some of the other sports you can't quite spend as much money on. But you can strategically say, hey, we we can win – in women's gymnastics and basketball and those sports. And maybe there's some sports we can win at, but not as high a level because of our location. You know, I mean, I can't believe our men's tennis team won that back tied for the Pac-12 championship, but that's a sport. When I was there saying we can't pay at the high level. league. We just can't do that because we're, our success is not going to be as high there. So let's put our money into, you know, women's basketball.
2: Chris Hill, former university of Utah athletic director is with us. Um, look back in your time, you know, and I know we all focus on football, men's basketball. You brought up softball. You know, when you look back in your time as an athletic director, um, I know you were at a ton of events, but when were you having the most fun? Okay. Okay. Well, the most fun, we
5: were telling you, most fun is being on the road and, and, you know, seeing the kids interacting in the hotel uh, after you know, win or loss, you're sitting at the bar, wherever, having a couple of drinks with the assistant coaches, the head coach. Those trips on the road were a blast. You know, winning's a blast. And then for me, I told people I was the only administrator on the university campus that could actually walk out of the office and see their see their students, see their progress. You know, and I used to walk over to work out at lunchtime and run into some of the students. And I always, they always thought I was a little crazy because I'd have a – You know, kind of a wise guy sense of humor, and we'd get there, and I'd weigh in uh, before I worked out, and some of the other teams are weighing in. I go, God, do my shoes look that much heavier today? Then I'd walk away, and they look at me like that. So, part of for me is on the road, obviously to victories, and then those little things of just running into students around the place.
2: Chris, I really appreciate your time before i let you go um you know i know you pull for this conference because you were part of it part of bringing oh. utah in uh all of the nay and naysayers the gloom and doom you know there's just a lot of misinformation out there but how confident are you that utah let's just talk there because you know that community that utah really is committed to the pac 12 and and is is on board
5: that's what i in her- hearing, that's what I'd very much like. Um, the schools are so fantastic in the Pac-12, such great locations and all. I I just think that Utah's going to be fine. I, that's what I hear, um, not directly but indirectly around here. And you know, I'm a little bit in the same position with you. But for me, if you're just sitting in my chair, I don't want to be naive because a lot of people are lying to each other. Like they'd go to the Big Ten tomorrow or whatever, but. For me, the ideal thing would be to stay where we are for at least the next five years.
2: Chris Hill, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. You have a great day. Bye now. There he he is, former University of Utah athletic director. If I'm San Diego State, I'm calling that guy, and I'm going, hey, we'd like for you to consult on our potential move to the Pac-12 conference. Um, Really good stuff to unpack there. I think we get an idea – of uh, what it was like to work with Larry Scott, alongside him, and uh, you know, no axe to grind from Chris Hill, but I think Pac-12 fans should be really upset about how that era unfolded. It was, uh, it was the you know we talk about all the time in our family about the decisions you make today and how they sort of impact. Tomorrow, a year from now, 10 years from now, like you literally can go watch the moving sliding doors and you can go, wow, if only you had taken this direction instead of that direction, you could do all that stuff all day long. The Pac-12 needed in that Larry Scott era to have the presidents and chancellors check him. They did not for whatever reason. They did not get that done. And in the end, I think, you know, that paved the way for USC and UCLA to leave the conference. Um, I love that interview and I love the wealth of expertise that somebody like Chris Hill has, but I can also hear in his voice that, you know, you have all this legislation nationally, players uh, and, you know, athletes in college uh, may earn the right to unionize shortly and uh, bargain collectively. And in that it then becomes some derivative of professional sports. I, I don't want, consolidation like as a fan I don't want there to be only 40 teams in major college football that have uh, a chance to win but I kind of feel like right now with a 14 playoff there's only about 12 teams that when I look at the AP top 25 at the beginning of the year the preseason poll there's only about 12 teams that I could see really having a reasonable chance to to dream and you know about five of them are in the (laughs) the SEC And, you know, two or three more in the Big Ten. So we're really only talking about, you know, one or two teams in the Pac-12, maybe one, two teams in the Big 12, maybe one or two in the ACC, and then everybody else is left out. So maybe we already are in a place where major college football just consists of 40 programs. Um, I think uh, it's interesting because Northwestern president Michael Schill, the former Oregon president, He gave an interview, a faculty interview, in which he kind of talked about the potential for further consolidation and, you know, would the Big Ten one day, you know, he says it made sense from a travel standpoint to add more schools from the West Coast. And I guess from a travel standpoint, it would make sense. But if you tell me that major college athletics is moving towards a system where you are going to have athletes be employees. I can tell you back in return that Illinois and Northwestern and Purdue and Indiana and Minnesota, they're not going to want to add members from the western part of the United States and subsidize them in their TV deal. They're going to want to do quite the opposite. They're going to want to keep every penny and not have to compete against others. And they're going to go, hey, you go over there and be, uh, you don't want to be part of the top 40. You're going to have to do it somewhere else. Um, It's really complicated times. I... I fear that we have already lost our hold on the sport, and at the same time, I can't wait for college football season to start because I can't wait to see what happens. I want you to leave it here. We got punch and audio still ahead. You got the BFT statewide. My favorite part of that last uh, interview with Chris Hill, the AD at Utah, was uh, him kind of talking a little bit about softball and Utah softball. Softball programs in the past in the Pac-12 conference uh, having a great season. And uh, him talking a little bit about kind of how joyful that was. You could hear it in his voice. The competition of college athletics love that stuff, and uh, love hearing administrators like that. Um, I've often thought like you know sometimes I, I early in my career I would I would enter a press box and I would see some sports writer or radio show host or television personality that had been in that press box. Forever, and uh, I often thought to myself, like you know, when I'm like 85 years old, I'm not gonna be sitting in the press box. I'm not gonna be wearing a credential. Like apologies to Bill Shanley, who I loved, but that's just not me. It's kind of it's not my that's not my uh, that's not my act. That's not how I roll. And I uh, I ultimately, though, when I hear Chris Hill talking like that. It, may, it reminds me that the best part of being at games is the stuff that you guys get to enjoy, not the stuff I'm doing. Like, I could be in the press box covering the games, and, you know, and I have my friends, they always ask me, they're like, what's Dan Lanning like? What's Jonathan Smith like? What's Kyle Whittingham like? What's, you know, what is it like to cover? The, who's the most, the kids will always ask, who's the most famous person you've ever interviewed? Um, Anna's over in Taiwan. This is a great example. So she has a uh, cousin who lives in Taiwan who plays professional basketball and other cousins who are just huge NBA fans. And she FaceTimed with me to show me two cousins who were out in the backyard of her aunt's house in Taiwan who were shooting baskets. And one of them had a LeBron jersey on, and the other one had another NBA jersey on. I couldn't quite make out, but she was like, all they wanted to know was, has he ever interviewed Kobe? Has he ever interviewed LeBron? Uh, Damian Lillard, you know, what is Damian Lillard like? All of that, the stuff that happens, you know, with the NBA doing such a good job globally of becoming a brand. Like, that's how you know Adam Silver's league is winning, is uh, you go to Asia and you go to a playground. Uh, I was in during the Beijing Olympics in 2008, Uh, David Stern's NBA at the time. I remember driving by the playground. Every single kid on the playground was wearing a different NBA jersey. It was ridiculous. I was like, "This is remarkable," um, but it is about the competition in the end. It is about the competition, and so I do think, like, while I say, "Hey, I won't be in a press box. I won't be doing this. I won't be doing a radio show. I won't," like, I'm, it, I, there's a high likelihood, high probability, I'll be at some games, and I'll be there because I love to be around sports. I'm envious of you. I walk through the parking lot uh, over the years at Hudson Stadium, at Reese Stadium, uh, at visiting stadiums, and I'm going to work. And but I'm looking around and I can smell the tailgate. I can feel the anticipation. There's a Nerf ball in the air. Somebody's dad's tearing his rotator cuff trying to throw, a, you know, a deep pass down the middle of the gravel parking lot. And uh, you know, people are, you know, enjoying themselves on a sunny, cool, crisp autumn day or a warm day or better yet a day game uh where college football is being played like on yesterday's show i did that whole segment we did that whole segment about who's the most enjoyable player you ever watched play i tweeted about it and the re- the replies to the tweet are just going and going and going because people want to share that it's part of the joy of sports not all this other stuff that we have engaged in. It's not about media rights. Nobody's sitting at the tailgate with a T-shirt on that says, Go Media Rights! Nobody's sitting at home in their living room with pom-poms or their face painted going, You know, I hope my athletic department gets a great revenue distribution this offseason. It's not what it's about. It's about the actual competition. It's about getting to know players. It's about, you know, as a... Maya Angelo said, you know, it's it's not what you said, it's not what you did, it's how you know, how people made you feel, that's what you'll never forget. Um it's that's the same could be said of sports. You know, you'll forget the score. You'll you'll forget the details of the game, but you will never forget how you felt at the stadium. You'll never forget the feeling that you got. And I've had that a few times even in the press box, but it's far easier to get when you are in the stands, in the stadium, you're in a seat, you're eating a hot dog, you're having a beer, you're with friends, or you're with family, or you're with your kids, and you are immersed in an experience, you know, I can tell you I I still get chills, I still um, am imp- wildly impressed by what I see at the stadium, and players, and when Bo Nix makes a play, or Oregon's uh, you know running back Bucky Irving last year, I thought, gosh, what a great college football player. That guy's guys are just a great college football player. Or at Oregon State Jack Coletto or Jaden Grant. come on, give me like give me Jaden Grant in that story, walk on, turned team captain in the end, making like the biggest play of Oregon State's season in the Civil War game when he sniffs out the quarterback uh, keeper and makes a tackle for a one-yard gain, and Oregon State takes over on down. Like, come on. That's what it's about. That's college football experience. It's not about these commissioners. It's not about Larry Scott making $50 million off the backs of players. It's uh, Frankly, it's not about the transfer portal NIL, even though those things matter in roster construction in college athletics. What it's about is the feeling that you have at the stadium, and I'll never forget this. Decades ago, when Oregon was hosting Michigan at Autzen Stadium, uh, people may remember it's very unusual, right, that Michigan would come to Otson Stadium to play a game. But there they were, and uh, you know Oregon's hosting them, and Oregon's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and they're cool, and yeah, you know, they're wearing highlighter yellow, and uh, they're playing Michigan. And I went into the crowd, and I found a fan who was blind. Okay, This is evidence. This is Exhibit A to what I'm talking about. This gentleman was blind, sight-impaired, season ticket holder, attended games with his father, Okay, middle-aged guy, going with his dad who's you know, 25, 30 years older, and found this blind guy who is a diehard fan, was at the games, and wrote about his experience. He couldn't see anything that was happening in what was the biggest home football game of, you know, Oregon season and maybe, uh, you know, the best, biggest home opponent that they had, maybe maybe them in Oklahoma. The non-conference opponents you can talk about that are big time at Oregon. You know, Ohio State scheduled to come back in like 2032, 2034. But it's, these are few and far between. And yet, this is a fan who told me you could feel the game, right? And I thought, You know, there's something to see in that. Like, literally, play on words. There's something to see. He would listen to the Jerry Allen broadcast, but the crowd got so loud during portions of the game that he couldn't hear the radio. He couldn't really tell what was happening on the field until Don Essig, the play-by-play announcer, would you know say, you know, pass completed for 32 yards and first down Oregon or whatever happened. Until that moment, he was not aware of it. He was just feeling what was happening in the stadium. And I think that's what it is about. It is about the feeling you have when Damian Lillard hits a 37-foot shot in Paul George's face to win a playoff series. It's about the feeling you have when Marcus Mariota rips off a 55-yard run for a touchdown and uh, puts Oregon in the driver's seat on their way to potentially playing for the national championship. It's about Oregon state coming up with a uh, touchdown and a two point conversion on the road at Fresno state in the closing minutes in front of a hostile crowd and, and Jonathan Smith going for it and going for the win instead of opting to go to overtime and the disbelief on Jeff Tedford's face on the opposing sideline followed by a smile from Tedford. Like I, you know, that to me said so much about that moment and that is what sports is about. We've had great stories over the years. Um, You know, we told the story last uh, year ago. Mark Appel, the great uh, story, Stanford pitcher, drafted, you know, number one overall, toiled in the minor leagues, arm injuries, shoulder injuries, surgeries, frustration, futility. He finally gets to the big leagues and gets a cup of coffee and is able to pitch just a little bit. And face a batter, and in his first inning, he strikes out a major league hitter. And the ball gets thrown back to him on the mound. One out, you know, a PA announcer is announcing the next batter. And the camera cuts to Appel's face as he's getting ready to get back up on the pitching rubber. And there's just this little smile. And it wasn't him taunting the hitter. It was him going, I just struck a guy out in a big league appearance. I got glassy eyes. I, You know, we've had him on the show, Appel. I don't really know him. I have friends that are far closer to him, Pac-12 fans that followed him when he was at Stanford. But we understand the struggle with your own limitations. That's what sports is. Every single athlete bouncing up their, against their limitations. It's a struggle against your limitations. Every day I deal with my limitations, The the letter carrier, he deals with his limitations. You deal with your limitations. It's a it's a very it's a universal theme. It's a this is this is every man. This is all of us. You know, they tell you in high school. I remember my high school English teacher, Mr. Sarekstad, good teacher. Uh, he would talk about you know the themes that you see in literature. You know, man versus nature, man versus the universe, and man versus man. But there's nothing better. Than man versus himself. Leave it here. Punch it audio next. All right. Yesterday on the show, it was a Monday yesterday. I actually thought it was Tuesday yesterday. Like daughters corrected me. It, that's that's how that's what happens when uh, Anna leaves and she's in another country. I don't even know what day it is. But yesterday on the show, Stephen in the five o'clock hour performed the five at five. Now Stephen, we uh, do this every Monday and every Tuesday. We give away a pair and then a second pair of Seattle Mariners tickets to somebody who was paying attention on the Monday show during the 5 at 5. Now, in your 5 at 5, you, of course, remember yesterday's 5 at 5, don't you?
1: Uh, Maybe. Hold on. Let me think about it.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm going to allow you to come up with the uh, question as it pertains to yesterday's 5 at 5. Maybe just, you know, what was... Go ahead. I got I got one. You got one? Okay, go ahead.
1: Yeah. Uh, we were talking about uh, potential players coming to the Portland Trailblazers. What player in particular were we talking about?
2: Okay. Potential players coming to the Trailblazers. It was one of the five at fives yesterday. What player were we talking about? Line up now at 503-417-7575. If you were listening to yesterday's show, you'll know the answer to that question. I believe we were talking about... Um, it was part of the Bill Simmons podcast where Correct. he was speculating about a player. You want to win four tickets to see your Seattle Mariners? Are they your Seattle Mariners? The Seattle Mariners? Because no Seattle team could really belong to people who are in Portland. But maybe that's the team you root for. You want to go see a Major League Baseball game twice with and bring friends? Uh, line up now. We will uh, put you on the air, and if you can tell us correctly which player it is that we, that we were talking about on yesterday's show you will win the tickets it looks like people are already starting to line up right now but join the fray at 503-417-7575 now i'm going to get ready with my buzzer incorrect or my bell that's correct and we will go to uh, we'll go to the phone lines and if if the caller can get it right then uh, we will uh, give them the tickets. And if they don't get it right, we'll move on to the next call. So as people may remember, last week it was the second person who got the answer correct. Let's jump out to the phone lines. Right now, Bob in Milwaukee is holding. Bob, uh, welcome to the conversation.
1: Hey,
5: I'm guessing Jalen Brown.
2: I was all ready to have the correct answer, and that is correct. And I am impressed with you. Now, were you listening or were you just guessing?
5: No, I was listening.
2: I love that. Who are you going to take with you to the Mariners game times two?
5: My uh, friend is like a brother who's a huge Mariner fan.
2: Because you, you actually get to go to two different games, so you could actually take two different people, or you could take your friend, and if and your friend, if he delivers like a great time, then you give him a second opportunity. And if he doesn't, you go fish. Exactly. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you're out there listening, Bob. Thanks, John. All right, hold on. Uh, Judo yep. will be talking to you momentarily and getting your information. How about that? First-time answer.
1: Steven, I always like when uh when the winner says, "You know what? I'm I'm bringing someone that is a fan of the team or you know, a fan of the band if they're playing." Like that always makes me feel good.
2: Can I share a little Mariners story? Please do. Real quick. All right. So, <sighs> Anna and I went to a Mariners game. I think it was a couple of seasons ago. We didn't go last year. And then was the pandemic the year before that. Like I it's been a blur. Feels like I feel like it feels like it's been a blur. So it might have been two to three seasons ago that I was finally in Seattle at a Mariners game. And we had really good seats. And it was uh I just decided to bring her up, take her to the game, happen to get the seats. They were along the first baseline. Again, I'm trying to catch a foul ball at a major league baseball game, never done that. You know, trying to cross that off my bucket list. And uh I said earlier I won't be in the press box. I'll be in the stands trying to catch a foul ball for sure But uh, when I'm old. But I digress. We, we end up at this game. Anna's one of these people. I'm not like this. Steven, when you go to a game, do you get to know everybody around you? No, that's not me. <laughs> it's not me either. I'm like the horse race, like the horses in the race that have the blinders on. Like, I'm in my own space, and I'm paying attention to the game. I'm talking to myself, talking to Anna a lot about the situational stuff. I'm noting you know, when uh, there's a runner on first base, and I could let's say you're behind, you can see the shortstop, the second baseman, giving each other the signal who's going to cover the bag on a stolen base. Like, I'm looking to see who's covering the bag. Are you the guy that's keeping score, keeping your own score sheet? No. I don't go that far. Because that guy always has, like, a radio headset on. And he's yeah. got a – that guy's always got a hat, like the team hat, and he's got a bunch of pins on the hat. And, you know, he's got a spare pencil and a pencil sharpener. Mm, but you definitely
1: know how to keep keep track of a score.
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I can score a game. Yeah. but. I don't want to score a game if I'm at the game. Okay, But Anna gets to know the people around us. She talks to people. She's a social animal. So she starts talking to the, like, the, the lady that's next to her. Lady says, we're here with part of a work thing. Hey, this is Gary. Gary's next to the lady. Gary's talking to Anna. I have to say hi because Anna's talking to Gary and this lady. and I have to participate. And then there's two or three people. And you realize that there's like a group of like five people in our row. Now, we were in the front row, down the right field line. We were beyond first base by about maybe 25 yards, okay? good, Really good seats, but we're definitely in that area where you have to pay attention because if there's a line drive foul ball that's coming down the right field line and it goes into the first row, you're in trouble. Like, you, you got to be alert, and you're going to get clocked. So I also, though, noted that if we got a bouncing foul ball, it happened early in the game, there was kind of a bouncing foul ball that was fouled off, you know, down the right field line, just beyond first base. It bounced kind of on the warning track and then hopped into the stands. And, you know, somebody like five rows away from me got a foul ball. And I was like, okay, i got to be alert for these situations. So we've been talking to these people all game. And – I'm explaining to them as I do, like this is the only conversation I was really intent on having with them. I'm explaining to them that I've never caught a foul ball at a game, and if a foul ball comes close, it's everyone for themselves, and I'm not, you know, I might be the guy that people later on social media are going, look at that grown-up trying to get the foul ball. I'm not going to take it from a kid, but if it's a grown-up situation and it's me and Gary, for example, who's two seats, three seats to my left, If we're both going for the foul ball, Gary's in trouble, okay? Because I'm going to get it. So, lo and behold, in about the seventh inning, after talking to this guy throughout the game, um, there is a uh, ground ball hit foul down the right field line that is, you know, just a routine foul ground ball that's coming our way. The the ball boy who's down the line isn't going to get to it. It's moving a little too fast for him. So it's literally going to hit right about where we are, but on the ground. And I, now I look over the railing. I can't reach down that far. It's about two feet beyond my reach to touch the ground. But I could get down there if the ball was hopping. I might be able to grab it on a hop. But, so I gave up on it pretty early because I was like, that ball is not getting to us in a way that I'm going to get it. I watched Gary, Stephen. Gary stood up as the ball was coming our way. He detached his right arm from the socket. I had no idea he had a prosthetic arm. It had a real hand on the end of it, like a, a makeshift hand. It wasn't like a hook. It wasn't a claw. It was a hand that was was made to look like a hand. He detached his arm. He pulled it out of his sleeve. He reached down with his free hand his good hand, his good arm, taking his fake arm, and he reached down and snatched the damn ball with it. It was the most impressive thing that I have ever seen at a baseball stadium. Gary removing his arm in that moment. Anna turns to me like, holy hell, what did we just see? Gary, I was dying. I was like dying laughing, and so was everybody in the in the uh, section. Because, and I, am, and I imagine Gary's okay with this because if you're not okay with it, you don't pull your arm off at the game. Like, he had a flannel shirt on. He pulled his arm off the flannel. I thought he was, like, when he went to do it, I was like, what? What, what is he? What? And I wish, like, you know, it would have been viral if somebody would have re- recorded it. But he grabs the foul ball with his prosthetic arm. And then holds it up with his real hand. It was it was a fantastic moment.
1: You gotta give him props. Like he wanted it more than you, right? Like he just wanted it. And I, I, that's awesome. My uncle uh, who passed away he had a he had a prosthetic leg. So I wonder if he would he probably would have done the same thing. Like he would you know take his leg off, put it out there, and grab it. You know you just give him props. They just wanted it a little bit more than you, John.
2: Yeah, you you say, you see that, and you go you know what life finds a way. Gary found a way, and after that I was like Gary, let me borrow that arm. <laughs> If another one comes our way, can I just can I just borrow that for just a think second? Of,
1: I mean, they should do that with major leaguers. Like they should have guys with fake arms so they can Ooh. reach out, and get longer, you know, line drives.
2: I'd have to study the rule book. I, I, can you do I that? I would tend to think that you would not be allowed to use the arm, the appendage, that if it's not attached to your body. But I don't know. Somebody could challenge that. All right, we will play Punch It audio in the five o'clock hour. But I had to tell you the story of Gary's arm on the show, and it was b- beside herself. Like, we looked at each other. There's just moments that you have as a couple, and you know them. If you're married, you're in a relationship, or you have a good friend, there's just moments you have where nothing needs to be said. You just look at each other. You know what each other's thinking. And We had talked all the way to the ballpark about the importance of getting the foul ball, how I'm going to get the foul ball, is visualizing getting the foul ball. And then Gary pulls his arm off, and I'm like, I didn't think of that. You know, like, hey – you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Gary did it. All right, the 5 at 5 starring Stephen is coming up. I'll give you a punch at audio in the next hour as well. And uh, for everyone out there, I hope you get a foul ball this season. You want to read me, you read me exclusively at johnkinzano.com. We often uh, deal with topics like the first bike ride of a 7-year-old's uh, life or the uh, exiled commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference. Uh, wrote about those two things in the last... 48 hours. Find it all at johnconzano.com. Steven is all stretched out. He's hydrated. He's taking this 5 at 5 mission very seriously. Anna will be back on tomorrow's show. She's at the airport in Taiwan now with her dad and four suitcases of his personal effects. I said on yesterday's show, like, he basically was packing up everything that he wanted to bring to the United States from Taiwan as he has decided that he is uh, moving here. And uh, he fit it all in four suitcases. Could you make that move in three suitcases, Stephen? No. No chance. (laughs) This is like, name that tune. You're supposed to say, yes, I could make that move in three suitcases. No, no, I cannot. (laughs) And then I go, like, why do you need more than three suitcases? What's going on? Just, what do you have?
1: I just feel like I have more than three suitcases worth of stuff. I don't know. Maybe I like don't. When, when don't. I
2: pose that question, what do you see? Do you see like your basketball shorts and things that are like, or, or are you seeing like family photo albums? Yeah, like I need, I
1: need to bring my TV. Like I need to bring a computer, right? <laughs> what like, do you
2: need? Your, what do you need to bring your TV? There's going to be you can buy a TV now, cheaper than ever. You need to bring your TV with you. Yeah,
1: I don't. I don't know. I just I feel like four is four is a lot or not enough. Maybe I'm rustic.
2: I love that. Well, Steven is going to uh bring his TV and uh Can't I live I, I, it. I think I could do it on two suitcases and a carry-on. Something like two and a half. Like a regular backpack as a carry-on? I have a I get a, I get a backpack or a duffel bag and two suitcases. And it and it, and it got Anna thinking. And uh probably gets a lot of us thinking. How much crap do you have around your house that you don't need? I've been thinking about that a lot in the last week. And while Anna's gone, you know what I do. I'm running over to Goodwill and dropping off things that I could never drop off with her present. I'm getting rid of rugs. I'm getting rid of bags, things in the garage. Like, I've been working nonstop, you know, (laughs) getting... I was at Shedding. a real
1: kick of watching the show hoarders and the yeah, same thing. Like I watch that I'm like, man, I could get rid of like ninety percent of the things I have.
2: That's what she Anna said, you know, and she she maybe she could speak about this on tomorrow's show, but she said as she was packing up with her dad, she was thinking to herself, like, when you really need to go and you're going to leave somewhere, how little that she realizes that you ultimately, uh, really, uh, ultimately need. Like, you know, you don't, you don't really need that much because her dad was kind of looking around going, well, I guess uh, I guess I don't need this stuff. Uh, it's just stuff in the end, right? can't take it with you. And what happens to all the stuff in the world? Think about this, Stephen. Here's another thing I've been thinking about. I read a story that said that New York City was sinking, sinking by two millimeters a year. And they're blaming the weight of the skyscrapers for the city sinking. Then I started thinking about all the crap that we have in our house. I bet our house is sinking by two millimeters a year, too. Well, That's a lot of weight.
1: Not to be morbid either, but then I think about, like, well, when I pass, like, wh- what happens to all this stuff? The kids right. just have to deal with it, you know?
2: Yeah, but what happens – okay, so what happens to everybody's stuff? Because we're in this – we are in a – co- we are a consumer country. We're consumers, so, what happens, like, at some point, do we just reach a point where everybody's garage is full, everybody's house is full, and what do we do with this stuff? We just pile
1: it up on top of each other. We know that. Just throw it <laughs> in the dump. Let, let the next generation deal with it.
2: Yeah, but then where do they take it? Like, at some point, does the dump get full?
1: I'm, I mean, at some point, it's going to.
2: That's what I'm But I'll I'm be logging. long gone
1: by that, John, so, you know. <laughs>
2: Not my problem. Not my problem. <laughs> there you go. All right, we have the Five at Five starring Stephen.
0: The, five at five.
2: the number one story, as Steven sees it, uh, or the most interesting or important story is Bill safety, Demar
1: Hamlin. He was on the field today, John. He was working out with the Bills during their OTAs. He was wearing a jersey without pads today. He did participate in stretches, agility, conditioning work, did some individual drills as well, did not practice in the team portion. So he officially was not back at practice, but he was out there working out, Hamlin back on the field a little after five months when he suffered that cardiac arrest on the field against the Cincinnati Bengals.
2: Is it is it already a win for him? Because I kind of feel like, hey, he's obviously he's playing with house money. He could have died on Monday Night Football in front of all of us. And he is, you know, making a comeback. He's going to get onto the field. Is it enough if he just gets onto the field and plays a season and it's relatively uneventful? Or what does he need to do?
1: Yeah, I think he just needs to get on the field and play in a game. Um, I don't even know that he has to be effective, but, it, you know, by all accounts, he looks good and he says he's good to go. Like, I don't want to say that, it, it, you know, having cardiac arrest isn't going to affect his career, but right. is it going to affect his career? Like, he may have a long career in the NFL. I, I really have no idea. I think it is a win already, but once he gets on the field and plays a game, I think it's, it confirms that win.
2: Wasn't that long ago that we were celebrating a report that... Uh... Damar Hamlin was awake. Remember this? Remember that Liberty Mutual customizes your home insurance. Here's a little number you'll never forget. Here in a commercial. <laughs> never mind. He was in Punch It. He was in Sports Audio. I don't know. Anyway, Damar Hamlin on the field. Good thing. I think I agree with you. I think he just needs to be in uniform. And if he's in uniform, then uh, it's a win. He's already a win. I don't even think he needs to make a whole season. I don't think he needs to start. But I would like to see him. Like he, you know, he, you think he's active week one? Yes, I do I, think <laughs> I think he's active week one, and I think his jersey ends the season as one of the most popular in the NFL. How about that?
1: I agree with you. I, I, I mean, what a story, right? I mean, it was like you said. There was just a little bit ago we were celebrating that the guy was alive, and now that was now he's on the field doing things. So
2: good for him. I like that. My kid, you know, it's funny. My eight-year-old the other day asked about him again. She was like, what, "You know, is he doing okay?" And I was like, "Man, I like that." That you know, she's not a die-hard NFL fan, like, but she knows that. Number two story, as Steven sees it. What is it? Your San Francisco 49ers,
1: they have uh, a bit of a QB controversy with Brock Purdy being hurt, but Kyle Shanahan did say today that Brock Purdy is will be cleared to throw the actual football sometime next week. Purdy, he hasn't thrown the football for about three months since he tore his UCL in that right elbow in the NC title game against Philadelphia when they lost. Purdy went 7-1 as a starter last season as a rookie. They, of course, picked up Sam Darnold, have Trey Lance also on the roster, but Brock Purdy... Almost back to throwing the football after that big injury. Here's Kyle Shanahan,
2: 49ers coach. How uh, doing on
1: his recovery? He's doing good. Still staying the same. Huh. Yeah. Yep, on schedule. Will
2: he, will he begin that throwing program here in the next week or so? Yeah, he's,
1: I think he's allowed to throw sometime next week.
2: Kyle Shanahan channeling his inner Bill Belichick in that cut. Mo- moving on, number three, what do you got? You talked about this early, but Brett McMurphy tweeted out, Then the Washington
1: State president, Kirk Schultz, he says that WSU athletics will have a temporary freeze on all current and future vacant positions until further review, as well as a pause on non-essential travel purchases and new professional development because of a significant decrease in Pac-12 revenue revenue distribution as a result of overpayments from one of the conference media partners that must be resolved. Uh, Washington State, man, they're uh, not spending. Is that going to affect them on the field? Like, should I be looking at betting Washington State unders now in football? No, no no, effect on that?
2: No. It, part of it is, it, I wrote about the $5.7 million bill that's coming due. It's it's partly because of Larry Scott's situation in that the overpayment to Comcast is coming due. They have to, to make up for it. it. Washington State is only putting this out right now because they are legally bound to report their budget. Their fiscal budget has to be public. So does Washington's. And they know they're going to run a deficit. So... I think Kirk Schultz is getting in front of this. I think it's damage control. I think he is signaling to lawmakers in his state and to citizens in his state that they're going to be in the red and and he doesn't want blowback like it's a big surprise. So I think he is trying to mitigate some of it. But I think in the end, all of the Pac-12 schools are going to have to figure out how to deal with that shortfall. It's $5.7 million per school, I am told. So all of the Pac-12 schools have to do that. And in the end, I think some will deal with it privately. I think it won't be a big deal at Oregon. I think it won't be a big deal at USC. I don't think Utah will make it a big deal. but I think like Oregon State, like you know, Scott Barnes is back on the job at Oregon State I think he's got you know to have some tough conversations about, okay, how do we how do we reallocate? how do we how do we make do without 5.7 million dollars over the next two years? That's a challenge. My,
1: my mind instantly went to like coordinators for the football team? Like, are they going to look at the situation and say, you know, maybe hinder them a little bit to go into Washington State? Do they have less money to spend on those type of things? Because we know how important those coordinators are, especially at a school like Washington State where they've lost a couple of guys the past few years. Like, does that have any effect on the coaching staffs of the school?
2: They're not going to hurt their revenue generators. Like, you know, they know that the furnace in, on any college campus is college football. So I think they, they will continue to shovel coal there. Where it does hurt you, I think, potentially is with some of the peripheral non-revenue-generating sports. Because that's where you go, hey, maybe we don't spend as much in baseball. Maybe we don't spend as much on our men's track and field team. Maybe we, you know, they'll they'll definitely try to cut corners. But Kirk Schultz coming out and saying, hey, we're not going to travel. We're not going to hire. We've got freezes on those things. No professional development. I mean, you know, he's signaling to his people that hey we're we're short here. We don't we don't have the money. And he and he doesn't want to hear it from his academics on his campus too. That's the big that'll be the big blowback is when the academics on campus realize that that Washington State's got, you know, upside down on their budget. They're going to go, look, they can't even manage their budget. Well, I don't blame the athletic department because they thought they had five point seven million dollars more than they actually had in the next two years and The Bills come and do. Where are we? Number three? Number four.
1: Number four. Sorry.
2: This is Uh, what I do. Yeah, this
1: is what you do. That's what I'm here for. Uh, More than 70 players have departed Colorado since Coach Prime has taken over. 51 scholarship players, 44 of them exited after the spring game. Pittsburgh coach Pat Narduzzi, he had a quote about Dion. Didn't really like what he's doing. He said, quote, that's not the way it's meant to be. Speaking of the transfer portal, that's not the rule intended to be. It was not to overhaul your roster. We'll see if it works out, That, but that to me looks bad on college football coaches across the nation. The reflection is on one guide right now, but when you look at it overall, these kids that have moms and dads and brothers and goals in life, I don't know how many of those 70 left that left really wanted to leave, or they were kicked in the butt to get out, end quote. Narduzzi, not really happy with what Dion's doing. Now, he was also critical last season of when Lincoln Riley poached Jordan Addison away from Pitt as well. To me, it sounds a little bit like uh, an old coach that isn't excited about the way college football is going or college sports in general. Things are changing.
2: I'm not excited about it either, and I have to caution myself from sounding like the old guy on his lawn. But um, I think part of it, look, when you look at coaches in general, when there's turnover, and I I have access to the Pac-12's document, right, with their uh, – they actually have, like, a uh, researcher at the Pac-12 that keeps a running uh, database – of who's transferring and who's not. I have noted that, you know, Arizona State had a whole bunch of turnover too. They've got a new coach. Um, Stanford had some turnover, more than you normally see. Like when under David Shaw, you saw a little bit of turnover, but not like what you've seen under Troy Taylor. So when you get a coaching change, you often will get uh, spikes. But you, this is an extreme example with Deion Sanders. Like Coach Prime is not only new – He's doing things way different. And so I think you have a mass exodus. I do think there's about two players that he probably didn't want to lose who walked on him. Uh, but the rest, I think he wanted him out because he wanted he wanted his own guys in there. No,
1: I, I kind of feel yeah. like this is good for the game. Like, we're talking about it a lot more. It's very interesting. Keeps players you know, on the go, which is what they always wanted. Um, I mean, you look at Oregon basketball, it's given Dana Altman the ability to change the roster on the fly. You, obviously, he wasn't happy with the team last season, and now he's already gotten four transfers in, got another one today from Central Michigan. Like, Altman is changing the team on the fly. Dion is changing the team on the fly and has brought a lot of buzz to Colorado. I don't mind it. I kind of like the transfer portal. It brings a lot more in the offseason.
2: It helps you if you're in those positions. It kills you, though. Look at Washington State. They lose, you know, Rodman. They lose their center. They lose Washington State basketball, who had a nice season, dealing with a bunch of attrition because players are now going, "Hey, I can get a better deal and go to a school that's got a higher profile." I'm out of here. But,
1: but look at Oregon State football. On the other hand, like they're a smaller market team, but like they're keeping other guys because their culture. I mean, is, yeah. isn't that have to do with the coaching staff and how you bring around you know the entire program? you like, I you know, I know Washington State lost some basketball players, but at the same time, like. On blame coaches to have blames with the coaching staff, blames with the program of that.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's how you build too, and you know, I think you know we we had the comment from Washington State's uh, Washington State's basketball coach that we played on the show, and it was really interesting to kind of hear him kind of talk about the philosophy of building a program. Jonathan Smith, not necessarily using like a star system at Oregon State, he's using development and culture, and I think in basketball you have a harder time with retaining your talent because, you know, you have a limited number of players on the roster. They're, you know, it, one player leaving and going to another school has a bigger impact in that sport than it does in football. And I think it's still a revenue-generating sport. So you get, um, you know, you get a big, I think, threat that, you, you know, you're going to have people jump and go to new schools. So I think, you know, Kyle Smith at Washington State was – Basically talking about, hey, I need, I need more money from the collective.
4: Uh, that, yes, but I think there, yes, that's fair.
5: But yeah, it's, no. But it's. I don't know. Be. I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's, it's got it's, it's ridiculous amount of money that that some of these people are throwing around. And I don't think that was the intention of the rule by any stretch. And uh, but it is what it is, and it's it's. it's uh, I don't think people. I don't think people can quite fathom what the kind of the money that's being thrown around
2: i think uh, there's a another byproduct of it you know and i think it'll be interesting to see if kyle smith changes the way he recruits he, he has largely brought in international players and i think he now will go towards developing young players but it's going to be a tough season for him next year
1: i also think it's a lot easier in basketball to transfer and fit in because it's you know it's not as you know strategic as it would be in football. Like you have to have a nice fit with the coaches. I think in basketball you can kind of get on the court and play. If this works in Colorado, John, is this going to be a trend? Is this going to be the norm yes. that teams yes. are going to be kicking seventy guys off
2: their team every year? Yeah. Well, you can you can do more in a coaching change than than not. But I don't I, I don't think ideally you want seventy new players. You know, Oregon State had six players that left. Utah had eight that is those are the two fewest in the conference now Dan Landing at Oregon had more but he's still he's still relatively new he's in his second season so I I think with Dan Landing at Oregon it was a little bit of hey I, I got a chance to look at some guys in a full season last year and they got a chance to play for him and there may have been some mutual hey it's not working for me Justin Flo goes to Arizona you know there may have been some of that going on with the Oregon program. Finally, Steven, are we on five? Or we are. Five? Number, yeah, five. number
1: five. Portland Diamond Project, John. They have identified the Lloyd Center as a preferred location for an MLB ballpark. It is actively negotiating with the mall's owners, according to multiple sources, the Portland Diamond Project revisiting the struggling mall. It has been the anchor in the Northeast Portland's Lord, Lloyd District for more than six decades as a preferred urban location for the ballpark. Now, interestingly enough, this is also the site that sits adjacent to the footprint of the Albina revitalization mm-hmm. efforts, where Phil and Penny Knight just spent $400 million to create the 1803 fund to help restore Portland's traditionally black neighborhoods, also less than a mile away from the Blazers and the Motor Center, where they have started the groundwork of a dramatic renovation. Is this any news or just, just kind of, hey, we're back and looking at the Lloyd Center?
2: Somebody wanted that news out there. That's how it struck me. I, you know, I've known that the Diamond Project has kicked the tires on the Lloyd Center for a long time, but I don't think it's where they want to be. I think the city would prefer them to be there. And it, the whole thing kind of struck me as that story, you know, is out there because somebody wanted it out there. Uh, I think the Diamond Project would much prefer to be in the suburbs and not have to deal with Portland politics, the lack of city leadership. There's no political will at all. So unless the Lloyd Center Project comes with a whole bunch of ambition and some kickbacks and some commitment from the city. Hey, we're going to invest in the infrastructure, like basically grease the wheels for this. I don't see the advantage of doing it. You know, I, 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 I have long believed that the right thing for the Diamond Project to do is to go to the burps where they will get a friendlier partner and an easier partner to deal with. I also That's, think it's
1: interesting the timing. With the Vegas thing kind of yeah. having some holes in it as well. Now Portland's showing some kind of strong uh, unification here, saying, so you know what, we're still involved. We're still di- involved with Portland trying to get the Diamond Project on this feed again. I thought it was an interesting timing.
2: The NFL has uh, an interesting plan for Thursday night games. They're going to flex some games onto Thursday night. Uh, some people not happy about it, plus uh, Reggie Miller talking about the NBA Finals in LeBron, Nikola Jokic, and a whole bunch more. All of that in Punch It Audio still ahead, We got great sound in Punch It Audio. Our staff has scoured planet Earth, come up with the best audio clips. We share them with you uh, every day on this program. Uh, we normally don't do it in the 5 o'clock hour, but I don't know if you noticed, Stephen, but today's show, um, I got a little folksy on the show. I was telling stories about the guy taking his arm off at the game. And getting the foul ball. I was talking about, you know, college athletics. We had a great conversation with Chris Hill, the Utah Athletic Director. I thought it was fantastic and and I appreciate all the calls that we got on today's show. But uh, I am now ready to do punch it audio for real.
0: We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish
1: Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio.
0: Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
2: The NBA playoffs are on uh, the Denver Nuggets have Advanced to the NBA Finals. Nikola Jokic with a dagger, punching. Shot
1: clock at four. Jokic has to put it up.
3: Falling
0: away, puts it up. Dang! Nikola Jokic knocks it down.
2: His foot was on the line, a two-pointer. What a shot! Jokic has been fantastic. Steven said it earlier in the show. One of the coolest guys in the NBA, and if you could get Jokic, and Jimmy Butler into the NBA Finals. Would it be the coolest NBA Finals in history? Well, Reggie Miller thinks that's where it's headed. Reggie Miller says the Heat and the Nuggets, they're for real. Punch
5: to it. me, it's his supporting cast. These dudes would die. They would run through brick wall for him. And that's what I its love.
3: I love seeing the supporting cast thrive off of what Jimmy Butler and how he sets them up and how they support him, it's just a great... You see that a little bit with Denver, too. You know, Brown, uh, Aaron Gordon,
5: uh, KCP. The way they play off of Jokic and Murray, they understand their roles. We know what what we're here to do. You guys get us there. We'll do our little bit. But when it's time to win a ballgame, Jokic, Murray, do it for us. Jimmy Butler, bam, do it for us.
2: Reggie Miller uh, spitting some truth there, but I think it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, we just saw the Lakers get swept. We saw Denver and Mike Malone, who I think is a really good coach, basically tell the world, hey, nobody's talking about us. Nobody, we deserve it. Chip on our shoulder. Love the way that Denver approached it. And it really is uh, Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray in the end. it You know, can – can whoever gets to the NBA Finals, likely the Miami Heat, defensively deal with those two players? Steven, can the Heat, because they're up 3-0 in the East, let's say the Heat get there. Do they have the defenders to stop that two-headed monster?
1: Yeah, I, I've been doubting the Heat the whole time, John. To be, i mean, frankly honest here, I, I, I would have bet against the Heat every single series. This, this entire playoff run. So I, I've been a heat doubter, but yeah, they got it. Like Jimmy Butler is that guy. And defensively, they are really good. Bam Adebayo, he's one of the better defenders in the NBA. Jimmy Butler, same type of thing. So I think that they can throw some guys out there at Jamal Murray and Nicole Jokic to somewhat slow them down. But right, I mean, Denver, Denver might just be the best team by a lot. And that just might be what it is. They were the best team in the NBA all season long. And we just overlooked them because they're the Denver Nuggets. They could just be the best team in the NBA. We're just not even recognizing right now. But I will say this, John: it, it's cool to see these non-super teams. Are super teams dead. You know, it's it's not these superstar players. It's just Jimmy Butler and a bunch of guys. Nikola Jokic, who was drafted by the Nuggets, Jamal Murray, drafted by the Nuggets, Michael Porter Jr. drafted by the Nuggets. Mm. Like home-built Denver Nuggets squad, taking on you know Jimmy Butler and a bunch of undrafted guys. It's it's kind of cool that it's not these superstar players. I also think. If you're the Blazers, you look at the Nuggets and uh, Mm -hmm. three best players all drafted, hang on to that draft
2: pick. You make the pick yourself, do you not? Isn't that what – like the finals always try to tell us something. Like back in the day, we were told you need three superstars or you need two superstars. And I can remember Kevin Pritchard saying, you know, here's the model. This is what you need. And so the Blazers, in the position that they're in, cannot afford to give up. They already can't get free agents. Trades are hard. Like, trades, lopsided trades are easy. Like, if you want to take less in return, teams will do that with you. But the draft is the draft. And if you're sitting with the three pick, you take the pick. You treat it like it's gold. The one trade that Nuggets made
1: was for Aaron Gordon, but the rest of them were drafted and then free agent stuff. I, I, You know, I love trading. I love the wheeling and dealing. But I think trading can be a little overrated, like you said there. It's hard to trade for a guy and then make them a part of an elite team. I just think that's really tough. I think it's a lot easier if you draft them yeah. and you develop them that way, and then you trade to get over the top. I think that's the way to right. do it.
2: Uh, but, you know, Bob Witsit used to take hostages, right? He would trade for guys because he knew free agents weren't going to come to Portland. you got to take hostages. Here's Ben Goliver on that front. He was on this show on Friday, and he says uh, there will be life before and life after Damian Lillard. Treat the pick like gold. Punch
0: it. Getting the number three pick is a great asset. It's not Victor Wimbanyama, but that is an opportunity to get a guy who sets you up for the next, uh, you know, 5, 10, 12 years if you, if you hit the right guy at number three. Um, There's so many Hall of Famers available at number three that you've got to treat that thing like a piece of gold. And this idea that you're going to let any player, even a franchise legend like Damian Lillard dictate, you know, what you might do with that pick, to me it's foolish. You know, I think you've got to make the the best decision in this case is almost always using that pick on the best player available and being patient enough for that player to grow into, you know, an all-star caliber guy. Um I would try to just reframe this entire conversation if I was Blazers management. I don't want this narrative out there around the league that's all about you know Damian Lillard runs that show you know they're just going to do whatever they can to kind of build a a winner around Damian Lillard you know Damian doesn't want to play with kids all of those things are negative to the um, perception of the organization as a whole it's not just Dame's team right the Blazers were there before Damian Lillard and you know one day once he retires or moves on to a different organization the Blazers are going to be there after Damian Lillard, you know there was before Walton and after Walton, before Drexler, after Drexler, before Brandon Roy, after Brandon Roy. This is how it works. And if you really want to set yourself up for success these next ten years, put away the trade machine. You know, get in the gym, watch these young prospects, and pick the best one you've got.
2: When Gulliver said get in the gym during that interview he did on this show, I thought he was telling me I needed to work out. That's how I took it. But I love what he had to say there. It's true. We get caught up, as sports fans, with this recency problem where we sort of look at what is happening with the team, and, you know, we see the roster, and you see Damian Lillard, and you think, you know, this is, this is as good as it gets. And, and often that, I think, forces some franchises and fans, of course, to operate from a place of insecurity and fear. You know, I'll tell you who doesn't operate from a place of insecurity and fear, winning teams. Winning teams don't sit around filling the uh, the void in conversation with negative thought. They do not. Uh, they don't rent the apartments in their head to negative thoughts, right? The tenants that they rent to, the Denver Nuggets, you know, they're they're busy building and tweaking and drafting and drafting good players and hiring a good coach. And did the Denver Nuggets make mistakes? Absolutely. Look at their transaction history. They didn't get everybody right. They didn't get every single pick right. They didn't get every transaction. Not everybody stayed healthy. They made mistakes. But you know what the Nuggets did that, that some other teams didn't do? They had a plan. They saw it through. They had good players. And when they made a mistake, they course corrected. And I think because of it, they're, they're you know, why the rest of the league, you know, some of the league has regressed. They haven't.
1: I got one final thought on the Nuggets here, John. It's kind of the same situation as the Blazers. And the Nuggets, Carmelo Anthony, he just retired. There was life before him, life after him. It wasn't the exact trade that got into the title, but you know what, a lot of people thought the Nuggets would fall off once they traded Carmelo. It didn't happen. They were still good, and now there's life after as they used their draft picks and gotten better.
2: You remember the Blazers in that series with the Nuggets, they win it. CJ McCollum has that big game in game 7. They win it. They go on. The Blazers go into the Western Conference Finals. Um that was that was the ceiling for the Blazers. The Nuggets have regrouped. And here they are again. They're back. LeBron James reacting to the end of his season. Is it the end of his career? Or is he just trying to change the conversation? Punch it.
3: Um, it was a it was pretty cool pretty cool ride. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think it was okay. I don't, I don't have to say it's a successful year because I don't play for anything besides winning championships at this point in my career. And, um and I don't, I don't I don't get a kick out of making a conference appearance. I've done it a lot, and, and it's not fun to me to not be able to be able to be a part of uh, you know getting to the finals, but, um, but we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens going forward. Um, but I don't know I don't know. I had a lot to think about, to be honest. I had a lot to think about, to be honest. And um, just for me personally, going going forward with the game of basketball, got a lot to think about.
2: I was looking at Michael Jordan early in his career. You know, he had a couple of short series in Chicago. In his first three seasons, he really he did not, you know, get out of the first round. In fact, they got swept a couple times. But late in his career... You know, his playoff win record, 119 and against 60. The championships are hard to disagree with. It does. If LeBron had won this year, I think it really would have muddied the conversation about who's the greatest player of all time. But was it a win for Michael Jordan, Steven?
1: I mean, I guess. I never really thought about that. But, yeah, I mean, I think any time LeBron doesn't win a championship and then does something that Michael didn't do, right? Like, Michael never got swept in the first – or in our
2: playoffs, I don't believe. No. Um, I, I think that is a win for Michael Jordan in the GOAT debate. Never got swept in the finals, Eastern Conference finals. Early in his career, they did get swept in the first round. But um, LeBron, the way they got beat – LeBron's got 10 trips to the finals. It's not bad, right? <laughs> like, no, when you look no. at what LeBron's done – not brad not bad to be, like, the second-best mustard, is it?
1: No, I mean, I don't think it's bad to be the second-best player in the NBA. It's just, you know, it
2: is what it is. Is he the second-best, though? I kind of wonder.
1: What, do you think lower? Like, third? I don't know.
2: I don't know. Could you, could you take Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem, Magic? I mean, he's in the conversation, right? When I mean, we talk about the be the best five players of all time, he's in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you throw... Like you said, Wilt, Kareem, Magic probably. That's about it. I mean, anyone else after that, I don't think he really, I think he's above all the other one else.
2: Here's my here's my debate. If you had every player in NBA history in their prime, like elementary school, lined up on the basketball court, and you are the team captain, who's the number one pick for you? MJ. I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm taking Michael Jordan 100 times out of 100 if I have the first pick.
1: I guess Bill Russell could be in there too with all the championships. You could argue could, but I I wouldn't. Yeah, MJ MJ just I saw that guy play. I saw him kill the Blazers. I watched highlights. <laughs> I watched games when I was a little kid. Like that guy just wasn't going to lose. Like and you knew that. You knew he was just going to kill you and win. And so yeah, he would do anything you you know anything to win. So he'd be number one pick.
2: The NFL w- is going to be able to flex games to Thursday night. uh, And players, some players aren't happy about it. Marcus Spears was talking about this. Here's Spears, punch
3: it. Let me make it plain for everybody. Players don't like playing on Thursday. I did in my entire career with the Dallas Cowboys because we always played a Thanksgiving game. We do not like not having that window to get our bodies ready to play the next Sunday. So let's just get that out there, okay? (laughs) And everybody understands what this is about. This is about obviously making money. It's about giving them flexibility to put good games on because the entertainment aspect, and we got to kind of get our feelings about that with the NFL. We can be mad about it as far as players and as far as player safety, but the NFL is a business. They're they're in business to not only grow the game, but to make money. This is another way to do that.
2: It's It's all about TV too. Uh Spears isn't going there but I will. The the whole idea behind this vote to allow Thursday night football to be flexed. It's weeks 13 to 17. Only two flexes are allowed per season. 28 days notice is required, okay? The vote was approved by a margin of 24 to 8. Giants, Jets, Packers, Bears, Raiders, lions Bengals, steelers voted against it and mark davis the raiders owner was the most vocal about it he says that if you have a raiders charger game in las vegas scheduled for a thursday you have all the fans that are driving from los angeles he said all the raiders fans and all three chargers fans took a slap at the chargers buy their tickets, book their hotels. He said, "How the hell do you schedule it and I'll say, "Sorry, it's on a Sunday." How do you do that?" Well, they're doing it 28 days ahead. That's how they're doing it. And um, it but it's made for it's made for TV. The whole point is they don't want to have a lame late season Thursday night game. And they're doing this because their TV partner on Thursday night, Amazon is going, "Hey man, don't give us crappy games." In week 15, 16, 17, if you can see them coming a month ahead of time, please, you know, please give us that opportunity. That's Punch It Audio. Leave it in. I love getting big guests on the show. We'll continue to book this show uh, in that way. Uh, I got a few coming down the pipeline that should be fun. Um, Also uh, interested in uh, trying to figure out uh, how fast we can get a variety of coaches in the Pac-12 on the show. I've requested Troy Taylor, the Stanford coach. I've talked to Colorado about Coach Prime, efforting him. I'm being told that um, it is likely we will get Coach Prime. It's just going to be uh, me waiting in queue to get to him. Um, it's going to put some pressure when I do get him on the show. Like, Not in the way where like, I'm nervous in the interview, but we got to make it count because I think we'll get him again on Pac-12 Media Day in July, so I don't know. Like, I, I, maybe we want him now, maybe in June, and then again in July. I don't know. Or maybe do we want to wait and get him in July and then try to get him later? Stephen, do you have some strategy on that, or should I? Am I overthinking it? We'll just take him when we can get him.
1: I think you're overthinking it a little bit, because um, I think I think you'll get the best out of him, right? Like, like you said, like you usually, you're usually good at getting a rapport with the. With the guest real early on, and I think he'll trust you enough to, uh, you'll get the answers that you want. So I don't think it really matters if it's
2: June or July. So we'll get Coach Prime on. Who else do you want to hear from in the Pac-12? Coaches in the Pac-12, players in the Pac-12. Like I mean, we had Kalen DeBoer recently. I thought that was a great interview. I went back, I've listened to that interview twice now since the end of it, and I hear I hear it a little different every time I, I listen to it. But uh, we'll get hit, we'll get all the coaches on media day. But I would like to get Michael Penix Jr. on um i think uh i would like troy taylor the stanford coach i'd like coach prime who else do we need to talk to
1: i think Chip kelly i think Chip kelly would be a good one i i don't know what to expect out of ucla like i know they're going to be good but you know am i going to trust that they're just going to replace charbonnet and dorian thompson robinson just so easily i think he'd be an interesting one um i also want to hear from jet fish you, you talked about this before they're kind of you know a dark horse to be a solid team this season and I want to hear what he has to say because he he's done some good things in this couple of years down there in Tucson. It seems like they really got some building. So I think those are the two coaches I'd like to hear from.
2: Yeah, you do that. How about players? Bo Nix, Michael Penn. I like to just do quarterbacks one week. I like to do five quarterbacks, five weeks. Interview them right back to back to back to back to back, and then be able to compare what Bo Nix said, what Caleb, Caleb Williams said, what Michael Penix said, and go from there.
1: I agree with you. I think that'd be good because. But the the problem is is you know there's still some QB competitions, so you know what quarterbacks are you going to get? They're not going to just going to decide that for you because there's so many different competitions going on. Yeah, that's the hard, that's right.
2: the tough part. Yeah, I think uh, yeah part of the problem with the quarterbacks is generally the coaches don't want to give you DJ O'Angalele because the you know they don't know or they don't want to announce to everybody in fall camp that he's the starter until they're ready to announce that he's the starter. But there are, uh, I think, a handful of QBs in the conference that are established. Cam Rising, when he's healthy, will be the starter at Utah. Bo Nix will be the starter at Oregon. Michael Penix Jr. will be the starter at Washington. Uh, I'm not 100% on Washington State. Cam Ward should be the starter there. But they have a young freshman who's a pretty good player that could push him if he's not on it, and I think that's going to help Cam Ward in a weird way. Um, beyond those those QBs, we got to wait at Oregon State, see what happens with Aiden Childs, talented freshman, but is it his time yet? I'm not sold on that, totally, and I don't think everybody's sold on it. But it should be, it should be DJ at QB for Oregon State. That's that's how it's supposed to work, ideally. And, you know, we'll keep we'll keep you apprised of that situation. What's your uh,
1: uh what's your read on the Arizona State situation at quarterback? With Drew time. Pine coming in from Notre Dame, Jaden Rashada.
2: The uh it's the, the other kid. Yeah, I can't remember his
1: uh, name. Poor. Trent Trenton Borquet.
2: Borquet. Yeah, it's Bor- Borquet will be the starter. Okay. That's my read. Jaden Delora will start at Arizona, but they won't allow him to do interviews. That's my prediction there. I think uh because of the civil lawsuit. And the settlement, I think Jaden and Delora will remain kind of uh, off limits to media. You watch what happens. They're not. They won't bring him to Pac-12 media day. That's for sure. They'll bring somebody else in the off- offensive side of the ball, which is basically an indictment of, hey, we can't bring this guy out and can't have him speak for the team. There's, it's going to be too much heat uh, when that, you know, when that happens. But uh, how about Shadir Sanders at Colorado? Yeah, yeah, you like him?
1: Oh yeah, I, I'm so fascinated with Colorado. I. I, I think they're going to be okay. I, I really do. I think this is going to work. I think they're going to be okay enough where, you know, I asked you earlier if this is going to be a trend where teams get a new coach and they really try to, you know, re, redefine their entire roster, in the transfer portal. I think it's going to work enough where teams think that they can do this. And I think that'll be a mistake. I think Dion is kind of one of one that can do this. I think you got to be a special kind of coach, special kind of program. And at a certain time, special time, I think Dion's got it all. I don't know if it works everywhere, but I think it's going to work
2: enough where other schools think, oh, we can do this, too. Here's an interesting, uh, interesting thought. Uh, a reporter of 24-7 Sports, Robbie Weinstein, wrote this piece earlier today that caught my eye. And it's possible that the Pac-12 could become the first conference in college football history to start 12 transfers uh, in week one. Um, think about it. The Stanford quarterback battle is wide open, and um, Ari Patu is the biggest name out there, but Troy Taylor, the new coach there, there's a lot of speculation that um, Justin Lampson, who's a transfer from Syracuse, could start there, Um, and, you know, he's a, uh, he's, he, you know, there's Ashton Daniels, who's a transfer as well, Um, there's also at Cal, there is Sam Jackson from TCU, and Ben Finley from North Carolina State, who are both transfers. Cal's uh, had Jack Plummer at quarterback last year, and he's gone now. He's gone to Louisville. And so you're going to have a new quarterback there. And Jackson, I think Sam Jackson from TCU, ends up as the starter at Cal. So there's two transfers. DJ Uingalele starts at Oregon State. There's three. Shador Standard starts at Colorado. That's four. Um, it's possible Drew Pine, the Notre Dame transfer, ends up as the starter at Arizona State. Bourque is the wild card there. Uh, He could spoil this whole thing. Uh, Ethan Garbers is a transfer from Washington to UCLA. He could start there if Dante Moore uh, doesn't end up as the starter in week one. Then you have Jaden Delora at Arizona, who transferred from Washington State. You have Bo Nix at Oregon, who's a transfer. Caleb Williams at USC is a transfer. Michael Penix Jr. is a transfer. Cam Rising is a transfer. Cam Ward is a transfer. It seems to me that it's either going to be 10 or 11 or 12 in the Pac 12. And the questions are at Arizona State mostly and Stanford you know, to see what happens there and uh, everybody else. You know, it looks like it'll be a uh, it'll be a transfer 100%. That could be history. Now, if you're the lone school, let's just say like you know, you're uh, you're Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State and Somebody comes to you a couple weeks before the season, and they said, you know, um, you know, it, we got a chance here to make history in the Pac-12. All uh, 12 teams are going to start quarterbacks as long as you don't start, you know, Jaden you know, Rashada at quarterback. You got to start Drew Pine at quarterback. We need a transfer there. Would Kenny Dillingham be tempted at all just to start Pine? And, it, and just it, to make history. It's like senior night when you start the seniors for like the first <laughs> yeah. play and then you take them out. Yep. Just one, one moment. Let me get them out there. Let I him, mean, I don't, you know,
1: I don't, I don't, I don't think that it would really, uh, I no. don't think it really benefited to be like, yeah, I'm going to do this just for the, just for the record. It would be pretty cool though.
2: But cause it would, you know, it put PAC 12 on, you know, you're on your leading sports center. It's t- here's 12 transfers and here's the story. I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, the problem is, uh, Borke is a senior, and I think he's going to be the best in the bunch. So there, you got a real issue there. So uh, we'll see what happens moving forward. All right, back tomorrow with another great show. Grab a podcast. Make sure you subscribe if you're listening on the podcast. And I uh, appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. Thank you to Stephen, Judah, the whole staff, the bald-faced truth. Not here for a long time, just a good time.